I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right. Hello, hello, everyone. Very special episode here today. I'm very excited for it. A couple of years ago, I read this book called Redating Ancient Greece, and it was... The first or second book I had read on chronology, the problems with chronology. Right around that time, I also read uh, Isaac Newton's book, The uh, Chronology of Ancient Kingdoms Amended, because Isaac Newton had problems with the chronology as well. And I had not yet read any Anatoly Fomenko, but I was very impressed by this book. And that actually caused me to start reading Fomenko as well. Very, very interesting subject. And I know we mostly do health here on this channel, but previously I've made a lot of content on this subject, hidden history, I would call it, or revised history, or even fake history, we could call it. And those were actually my most popular videos on YouTube. So I know a lot of people are interested in the subject. So I gave this book a rare 10 out of 10. And I did not know the author at all, Sylvain Tristan. But I reached out to him after because I saw he had an Instagram account. And I said, hey, man, would you like to do a podcast with me? Now, he didn't see that message until like a month ago. So I've kind of been out of this subject, but I was still very, very stoked when he agreed to do this podcast. So he is, he is here with me today. And just before we jump in today, just going to let you know, you can find everything that I do on my website, notusbooks.org, the books that I have written not on this subject. Most of them are about health and hundreds of book reviews on there as well. And an archive of this podcast is also there on notusbooks.org. And you can find all of our channels. We're most active on Instagram. We have a few YouTube channels. And since I will actually be posting this to YouTube, just want to let you guys know why I haven't been active there. Because our main channel got demonetized and many of our lectures, it's a health channel, many of our lectures keep getting taken down one by one. Every week I get a notification that a new video has been taken down. So I haven't been happy with YouTube and I haven't really wanted to contribute to what they're doing, suppressing health information. So if you want to find out what's going on, content I'm involved in, 
It's mostly podcast right now. I've been putting most of my effort into podcast. And all of these podcasts are posted to Patreon a week early. And when the video version is available, it's posted to Patreon. With the exception of this one video, just because I know you on YouTube, you love this subject. And YouTube doesn't actually punish this subject. But I can't post most of my health stuff on YouTube. So that's why I have not been active on YouTube. And without further ado, Mr. Tristan, thank you so much for being here. It really is an honor. I really am very, very excited for this. Very happy that you decided to do this. And I'd love to hear your lay explanation for this, because honestly, I'm not very good at it. It's not my subject. Health is my subject. And there was a lot of comments on this video that I made that I didn't really know how to respond to. I'm not an expert in ancient Greece, but I gave you a 10 out of 10 because I think the book did exactly what it set out to do. I'm not qualified to go and fact check every single thing, but I loved that it was not too short. Obviously, this is a hard to believe subject, so you can't be too short. That's one thing I fault many conspiracy books for being too short, not really explaining themselves. And it wasn't too long either. A lot of conspiracy books, and forgive me for calling this a conspiracy subject, it kind of is. A lot of them are too long. They're too long and rambly. You know, they're going off on tangents. They're speaking down to their audience. I just love the way that you handled it. You're very respectful of your audience. You know, you didn't expect your audience to be an idiot, I think. You know, wake up, people. (laughs) You're speaking to people who are looking for information, and you did it very professionally. Perfect length book. Great price on that book, too, $14.99. What a great deal. I was really, really happy about this. And you just made some updates, too, and you shared them with me. Stoked about that as well. I encourage people to buy this book on Amazon. Not only is it a good deal, but it's a really good book, especially for the truther community. Again, the truther community does not produce very good books. Not very often. I'm very, very harsh on a lot of those books and very disappointed with a lot of them. And most of them cost more than yours, too. So really, really great value. And on top of all that, this is self-published, right? But you had so few mistakes. I think I caught like one little spelling mistake. It was just very well done. I could tell you really put your heart into it. You really wanted to do a good job. And I respect you a ton for it. So I'll throw it over to you now. Hey, Ryan, how are you? Uh, Thanks for having me here. And, And thank you so much for your nice comments. Okay, so where do I start? <laughs> um, is the chronology of ancient Greece wrong, right? As you said, um, you, you, you mentioned Fomenko. So I, you know, I think it was in 2014 I read Fomenko. I mean, I mean one book uh, first, and then I read a second. And uh, at the beginning, I, you know, I thought it was crackpot theory. I couldn't believe it right away. But then uh, after some time, after reading, you know, a few chapters, I began to to wonder, wow, what if all this is true? I mean, uh, there are so many things that have, you know, had bothered me uh, about chronology for a long time, yeah, like, for, like for decades, ever since, I've, I, you know, when I was a child, even, I remember I was wondering, uh, how come we have these Middle Ages, you know, like a thousand years where not like nothing happened, but so little has seem, seems to have happened during the Middle Ages. So uh, uh, there are so many things that are strange about chronology, like uh, antiquity, you know, the ancient world, so many things happened. And then uh, a thousand years later, the Renaissance, suddenly 
everything seems to happen again. So what has been going on for a thousand years? You know, have people been sleeping all that time? And so suddenly it started to make sense. When I read Fomenko, I started to think, wow, this could be true. Uh, and especially, you know, his chapter uh, about ancient Greece, you know, really interested me because he was pointing out similarities between uh, medieval Greece and ancient Greece. So I started to to check, to, to do my own research. Uh, and uh, I started to compare these two periods. And uh, the more I was looking, the more I could find. So that's why today I, I have this book. Uh, because there's so, and, and I keep, you know, uh, every now and then I, I keep, you know, stumbling on something else, a new thing, new, you know, confirmation that Fomenko had not been dreaming. Uh, and uh, so there is something about chronology, which is blatantly wrong. It, it, it's not only Greece, of course, but I, I wanted to focus on something. And as I was interested in Greece, I thought of it as a good starting point to have an in-depth uh, study of Greek chronology. So that's why I started comparing events. So my question is, is the chronology of ancient Greece wrong? An investigation through time. So, you know, much of what I'm going to say, or I mean, everything I'm going to say is in the book. So there's much more in the book redating ancient Greece, but today we're going to cover, you know, a few um, interesting points. So the the two periods I I'm going to compare, as I said, are the so-called ancient Greece. So the question is, is it really ancient? So this ancient Greece runs from about 800 to 200 BC, and the second period I'm going to compare. Uh, study is medieval Greece or Renaissance Greece, which runs from uh, 1000, roughly 1000 to 1600 AD. So as you can see, there is a difference, a gap uh, of 1800 years uh, in between the two periods. And uh, I'm asking you to bear this you know, figure in mind, 1800 years or 1800 years, because as we're going to see, it's going to crop up all the time when we study the chronology of Greece, we're going to see that these two periods are very similar or quite similar. So the first example I, want, I would like to bring about is, you know, uh, scholars say that in the 8th cen uh, century BC, um, the term Hellenes was created uh, or introduced, uh, which is another name uh, for the Greeks, of course, Hellenes. And strangely enough, this... Uh, this name seems to have, you know, vanished for um, centuries. And I, you know, I, I, I bought a book by, uh, I think his name is Nicholas Dumanis, uh, called A History of Greece. He's a Greek American, and he wrote a book. And he, at some point in the book, he says that in the 11th century AD, the term Helene, which had, which quote had fallen into disuse for centuries. Uh, suddenly recovers its ancient meaning. So uh, what you can see is that uh, if we take the time gap between the 8th century BC and the 11th century AD, it's exactly 1800 years, So, which is the first clue that something is going on here. So it's either that things are repeating themselves or that the uh, most ancient, the more ancient uh, Greece, or what we call ancient Greece, is actually 
what I call a phantom, or what Fomenko actually calls a phantom reflection of the real Greece, medieval Greece. So uh, another clue that I found a phantom, is a, phantom like a duplicate. You know, this is a yeah. big, big part of Fomenko's thing. He's not saying that these events are fake. He's saying that they're just duplicated. You know, they happened most likely recently, and then they're written into history in duplicate form, maybe slightly different, but the same events repeat themselves. And he's saying it's the newest ones that are most likely the real ones. <clears throat> Exactly, exactly. So uh, what is generally thought when we, you know, in the, the field of new or so-called new chronology is that around the 16th, 17th century, when uh, a guy, uh, you know, a French guy uh, of Italian origins called Scaliger uh, began to create a world chronology, he, made, he either made mistakes or he deliberately made a fake chronology. So let's say he made a mistake. So he uh, misdated Greece by a staggering 1800 years. That's why we have these duplicates. So as you said, everything must have happened much more recently than usually thought. So the second example I'd like to bring about is about the Olympic Games. The, the first Greek Olympic Games are said to have occurred in 776 BC. Now, is it just a coincidence? But when you look at the, uh, when you go to Scotland, you know, where you have still today the so-called Highland Games, well, they're said to have existed since uh, the year 1040 AD, so about a thousand years ago. And strangely enough, the time gap between the two periods is 1,816 years. So as you see, we are very, very close to the 1,800-year gap we were talking about. So is that just a coincidence if the Highland Games were invented uh, at this time, about a thousand years ago? Or, well, did Scotland influence uh, Greece or Greece maybe influenced Scotland. It's either way, but at some point, but not you know in the remote antiquity, but maybe just a thousand years ago. So the Highland yeah. Games, the first Highland Games, might really have been the first Olympics. Well, yes, it it might have been the the first Olympics, and then they were exported to Greece. Um, now. In the, seven, uh, in the 7th century BC, this is in Athens, uh, it's called the Areopagus, uh, which is this rocky uh, hill uh, close to the Parthenon. And uh, on this rock, uh, homicides and other cases were judged uh, in antiquity, uh, we're being said, we're being told. And it's also uh, associated with the, the beginning of democracy. Homicides, now, by the way, that is, I know you've got an accent here, I just want to clarify that this is or homicides were being judged. This is like an outdoor court. Yes, exactly, exactly. An outdoor court would be the, yes, that's exactly what it was uh, in Athens. Now, in, uh, in Greek, uh, Athens is called Athene or something like that. I don't really speak Greek, but it's something close to Athene. Now, in the north of, um, uh, you know, much later in Northern Europe, you have these things called Althingi. And Althingi, uh, is something, uh, you know, of Vikings' origins. Uh, the Vikings held general assemblies, which was, a, you know, what I call the proto-form of democracy. And the leaders also 
administered ju- justice, you know, in this all thingy or all thing. For example, in the Isle of Man, the oldest parliamentary body in the world is said to 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 be there, and it's it's said to have existed since uh, 979 AD. And there's also one in Iceland, uh, which uh, has existed since uh, the year 930 AD. And interestingly, uh, they had the, this, this Althingi is also referred to as a rock of law. So it's very, very similar to what we have in Athens, except that, of course, in Athens, it's said to be much, much more, uh, much older now, is it older? Uh, the time gap between the two is about 1,500 years. So is it possible that Vikings you know, uh, invented this in, the, in Northern Europe and then uh, somehow exported it in the Mediterranean, for example, in Greece? So can, now, we, can we just go back to that? So the, the oh, yeah. Athens sure. or the Athene, this is a literal rock. Right, it's actually a rock. They did this on a rock outcropping, but yes. the Athingi, which sounds almost the same, Athene, Athingi, in Northern Europe, they called yep. this the Rock of Law, but that's kind of just like a metaphorical rock, right? It's not actually on a rock, but same concept, exact same concept. Uh, They're doing judgments. Well, no, it's not only metaphorical because I think that uh, you know, at least you know, some of them, some Althingis in Northern Europe. There, were, there was actually a rock, and uh, I think this rock, real rock, solid rock, was a place uh, where they would gather, and you know they would stand on the rock and uh, and judge, uh, you know, things. So I I, I I think it's a real rock. In both cases, now interestingly, in the 12th century AD, uh, Normans they went to Greece. Now, uh, first the Vikings, you know, uh, invaded the Mediterranean and then the Normans. And the Normans means Northmen, so it's very similar to the Vikings. Now, we're said that uh, between uh, 1081 and 1149, the Normans swept across the Mediterranean and destroyed Thebes and Corinth. And interestingly, in 1146 AD, uh, we are being told that they spared Athens. Because, quote, uh, the Athenians perhaps owe their immunity on this occasion to their insignificance. So this is not me, but William Miller, a historian, I think it's a 19th century uh, British historian. He said that, you know, in you know, about a thousand years ago, not even that, Athens was insignificant. It's a, it was a very small city. So traditionally, uh, you know, ancient Greece is about 2,500 years old. So Athens was a very big city more than 2,000 years ago. Now, how could it be insignificant just 1,000 years from today? That's a big mystery. So the question is, was Athens founded just 1,000 years ago or under 1,000 years ago? Now, uh, Solon is uh, someone, you know, a very famous uh, Athenian, that is considered to be the father of democracy. He created a popular court open to everybody, every citizens, every citizen in Athens. Now, uh, 1800 years later, uh, a tribe, you know, like uh, coming from Germany or northern France, uh, we're not exactly sure, but you know, you know, part, you know, north, north let's say northwestern Europe, Franks uh, began to occupy Greece, and in 1204. 
uh, a man called Ofen or Otho de la Roche, which means, by the way, from the rock or of the rock, uh, invading Athens. And then uh, another guy called William of Champlit uh, founded uh, what is called the Principality of Echa. I don't know. I'm not sure how you pronounce this. Echaia. Uh, well, it's in the Peloponnese anyway. And uh, Nicholas of Saint Omer also uh, invaded Thebes in Greece. So Franks invaded Thebes uh, exactly 1800 years after uh, Solon's reform. Now, another interesting thing is that in 1215 AD, so roughly at the same time in England, that's the time when the so-called Magna Carta or the Great Charter was written. And in this Magna Carta, which is very famous, this Magna Carta advocated respect for certain rules of law uh, specific to the nobility. And it's kind of an ancestor to of the Declaration of Human Rights. It's like the first Declaration of Human Rights. So it's something that looks like a protoform of democracy. So... Uh, are there 1,800 years in between the beginning of Greek democracy and this Magna Carta in England? Or are we talking about the same period? This 1,800 years just keeps coming up. Eh? The, one of them you mentioned earlier was 1,500 years. But still, there's this, there's this gap where all these events basically happen before in the deep past, supposedly. But then they happen, just so happen to be around the same period 1,800 years later or the same thing 1,800 years later, roughly. That's right. That's right. Uh, now, if we go through the uh, you know the chronology of uh, Greek democracy or Athenian democracy, we see that there was a reform uh, of Cleisthenes in uh, 508 BC, and then the reform of Pericles. So basically, uh, it meant that there was equality of all before the law in Athens which was a, an additional step in democracy. And with Pericles, uh, even the poorest citizens in uh, Athens could uh, you know, participate in the debates. So you know, scholars usually say that uh, around you know, the, the mid-5th century BC in Athens, it was the peak of democracy. Now, 1805 years later in England, we have this notion of equality as well now, with the Magna Carta. Because, you know, the, the notions of equality are introduced uh, with this Magna Carta. So it's almost exactly 1800 years later. Now, another thing which is very interesting is the term polis. Polis in Greek means city. And uh, so polis or the plural is polis. Um, they started to appear in Greece in 700 BC. Now, exactly 1800 years later... After centuries of absence, again, Nicholas Dumanis, the historian I was talking about earlier, in his book notes that police kind of re-emerge in Greece, uh, you know, after disappearing completely for centuries. So again, they choose to reappear in Greece 1800 years later, not 1500, not, you know, 2000 years later, 1800 years later. So that's a very, very strange coincidence, isn't it? Can I jump in and, and mention something sure. about art here as well? I'm, I'm into art. In a previous life, lifetime, I would have uh, introduced myself as an artist. But yeah, we have this dark ages in art as well, where 
art supposedly flourished in the ancient times, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, but then it just totally disappeared for over a thousand years. But then interestingly, you see a very linear evolution, like in the late dark ages, it's very simple art. And, you know, you can tell that uh, people are using the same kind of systems and the same pigments and stuff like that. And then it evolves into another peak in the Renaissance. And then, you know, we have the standard history of art since then. But it was like really good way back in the ancient world. And then it went back to being really primitive or it disappeared completely for a thousand plus years. And then you get primitive art and you see basically the art world learning together, mastering certain things developing new pigments and new techniques. So you have this very complete, steady evolution since the late Dark Ages, where I believe that history, right? But the only thing I have a problem with now is when they say, oh, yeah, this was this was done in ancient Pompeii or something like that, but it looks like it was done in the Renaissance. It's better <laughs> than what you see in the Dark Ages. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, absolutely. According to Fomenko, the uh, Roman Empire is misdated by about a thousand or eleven hundred years, and I think is right too. And I've been trying, uh, you know, maybe one day I will write a book about uh, ancient Rome, but it's much more difficult because, uh, well, I have a friend called Laurent Guilleno who wrote a book called, uh, which I recommend, it's called Anno Domini, and it's about the chronology of ancient Rome. So uh, I would like to write a book myself because, yes, you mentioned Pompeii. It's, uh, you know, many of us, uh, you know, in the new chronology field believe that uh, Pompeii, uh, the, the actual eruption occurred not in 17, uh, 79 A.D., but in 1631 AD, so just, you know, like 400 years ago. And uh, there's, you know, a lot of evidence, uh, you know, and art is one piece of evidence, uh, like the three graces which were painted by David and which uh, look almost exactly like the uh, uh, three graces which were uh, unearthed uh, in Pompeii and, uh, you know, which are supposedly 1500 years uh, earlier and they look almost exactly the same. So it's one example among many that Pompeii, uh, the eruption was misdated. Just one more example before I go back to Greece is that there is a stella very close to Pompeii, uh, which shows that, which talks about the eruption of 1631. And on the, the stone, it's carved the names Pompeii and uh, Herculaneum, which uh, were not supposed to, you know, which are supposed to have disappeared in 79 AD. Now, how could anyone in 1635, like four years after uh, the eruption of 1631, write, uh, you know, carve a, a stella uh, mentioning these two names if the two cities had disappeared for 1500 years? So, you know, there are m- many, many clues showing that. Pompeii was misdated. You know, Roman Empire is completely misdated too. What was the name of that author with the Anno Domini book? Yes, it's a French guy called Laurent Guilleno. It's a G-U-Y-E-N-O-T, Guilleno. Is that book and in it, English too? And his book is in English, yes, Sweet. absolutely. So why 1800 years ago? Back to Greece. Yes. Why these 1800 years uh, or are these 1800 years fictitious? Now, another piece of evidence is uh, Byzantium, uh, which is the name of uh, Constantinople 
today called Istanbul. Uh, it's said to have been founded by a mythological king or demigod called Pisas in the 7th century BC. Now, 1800 years later, in the 12th century AD, Constantinople is taken by the Crusaders, you know, again, coming from North, you know, or the Franks, coming from Northwestern Europe. And uh, Byzantium uh, is often written on maps, which is uh, illogical because it's supposed to have been named Constantinople ever, uh, ever since uh, the year 325 AD, uh, you know, after the um, emperor uh, Constantine, Constantine, and uh, on the maps, they call, you know, the 12th century maps, they write Byzantion or Byzantion Constantinople. Now, a very interesting fact is that many crusaders came from a French city called Besançon. Now, if you look at the name of Besançon in northeastern France, at the time it was called Byzantion. And it's almost, it's virtually the same name as Byzantion. So is the name Byzantium, which is the Latin version of Greek Byzantion, was it really founded in the remote 7th century BC or uh, much more realistically, much more recently, Founded or founded or at least uh, renamed by Crusaders, you know, Byzantium, coming from Byzantium, exactly like when, you know, uh, people from York the, uh, renamed uh, or named uh, New Amsterdam, New York, you see, or in the New World, you, ha you have so many names coming from Europe. They just took the names of their, the cities they, they knew in Europe and, and named new places in America with uh, European names. So what I believe is that we have the same here. Uh, Constantinople was renamed uh, Byzantium by crusaders coming from Byzantium. And uh, it's much more recent than we think. And opposite Byzantium, there is the city of Chrysopolis, which literally in Greece means the city of gold. Now, 1800 years later, uh, from the 9th to the 12th centuries AD in Besançon, in uh, you know modern France, what is with what today is called France, um, we have this uh, district which was called Chrysopolis. So the city of gold is actually the original name, apparently, from uh, you know a neighborhood in France or in. Uh, what today is France anyway, right? And so, these are spelled the exact same. They're spelled they're spelled the exact same. Now, the strange thing is that why would a French uh, or part of a French city, uh, what would it be named with a Greek name? So I believe it might be uh, that um, Crusaders, when they came back uh, to France, they renamed uh, Chrysopolis, uh, part of their city, Besançon, they renamed it Chrysopolis. So it's like twin cities. You have now, at the time, uh, about, you know, in the 12th century AD, you had these two cities, Byzantium in France and Byzantium in the Middle East, or in, you know, um, well, Istanbul. The Near and East, they say. The Near East, yeah. And... Um, there was this uh, opposite city, opposite the river, there was Chrysopolis. So they, maybe they just decided to to also have the, their own Chrysopolis. Or maybe it's the other way around. I'm not sure. But maybe they had this city of gold in, in Europe. And then when they arrived in the Near East, 
they also they decided to call it the city of gold as well, and then it be, became uh, known under a, a Greek name because people spoke Greek there. I don't know. Now, another uh, interesting character is uh, Zoroaster, or also called Zarathustra, who was, you know, in the 6th or 7th or 6th century BC, uh, so-called prophet uh, and founder of Zoroastrianism, a religion of the Persian Empire. Now, 1800 years later, in the 12th century AD, we have Sorawardi, a Persian, again, Persian philosopher and a mystic who we are being told, synthesizes the Zoroastrian heritage. So it's funny to see that this philosopher uh, lived exactly 1800 years after Zor uh, Zarathustra. So the question is, is it possible that these two philosophers are just one and the same person? Uh, another interesting character, uh, um, uh, this time it's a writer, is, is Aesop. Aesop was the Greek so-called father of fable. Uh, he was said to be of Phrygian origin. Uh, and, you know, he created these uh, uh, fables, these tales. And um, now, uh, much later, uh, so this time it's not exactly 1800, uh, 1800 years later. It's, it's rather 1750 years later. Uh, Marie de France, a, a French writer, uh, living in England, I think, she was the first person to translate Aesop's fables into French. Now, these fables were called, or she called, Aesopets. Now, why did she call them Aesopets? Well, you know, according to conventional history, they, she called them Aesopets to honor the Greek Aesop. So from Aesop, she called uh, his stories or his fables Aesopets. Now, now, when you look at the word isopet, it looks like the Greek or two Greek words like iso, which means uh, equal in Greek, and pet look like you know more or less looks like podi, which means foot. So, could it mean equal foot? Now, as you as you of course know, poetry is done in feet. So you have you know uh, usually you write one line and then the the next line you've got you've got an equal number of feet, so-called feet. So it works with equal feet. So did Aesop really exist, or or was it something you know very very you know new at the time uh, in you know uh, eighty uh, sorry in eleven eighty nine or you know when Marie de France wrote them or translated them maybe it was something completely new. Uh, oh, now we're getting to Homer. So Homer, of course, is uh, you know the, the writer, or not the writer, because he didn't write anything. But Homer is uh, this blind poet or bard uh, who's uh, very famous for his oral stories, the Odyssey and the Iliad. Now, in the 13th century AD, uh, in in Greece, the so-called Saint Homers came. You know, they were part of the Franks. Uh, who, um, who, who ruled over Greece. So it was a very uh, uh, preeminent family coming from the northern, uh, a city in northern France called St. Omer. And St. Omer, it's, it's called St. Omer because, they, you know, people say there was a, a bishop 
who was also blind. So just like Homer, the Greek poet or the Greek bard, this Saint Homer, who gave the name to the city Saint Homer from where uh, the family of Saint Homer came from, was blind too. So was there really a man called Homer in the 6th century BC or before? Or is it just a phantom reflection, a duplicate of the St. Homer family, which ruled over Greece in the 13th century AD? And when you look at Greek history, you don't find any uh, either Homer or Homer anywhere, except in the 6th century BC or before, this Homer, and in the 13th century AD, the St. Homers. That's it. So coincidence again, 1800 years. Now you're showing here a statue of Homer, and most or all of these Greek figures have statues made of them. So you think those statues would have been made also 1800 years later, like these are Renaissance statues? Oh, absolutely. I do not believe uh, a minute that uh, anything is that ancient. Uh, In Greece, I mean, nothing, you know, according to what I, you know, my studies, nothing can be 2,500 years old. They had to be made at the Renaissance. And when you study, you know, the more I study, the more I see that everything happened between roughly 1000 AD and 1600 AD. So it's probably, all these statues are probably, and by the way, they're typically Renaissance style. You know, the way they are made, they're so Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, and the way they, you know, they had to know the the, the muscles of the human body. And uh, of course, they were discovered really uh, during the Renaissance. Another great example of art having this dark ages here, because yeah, these ancient statues are wonderful they're gorgeous they're intricately detailed from the hair to some of them are wearing veils and jewelry and it's all perfectly carved the musculature and the anatomy is perfect yet this comes you know 1800 years before people could actually do this because art was very very primitive we have almost no art from the year like 1000 1100 1200 and most of the art that we do have it's not very good It's fairly amateur. They don't have very much materials to work with. And we hardly know the names of any of those artists. And it's only in the the time of the Renaissance, 14, 15, 1600s, that we have well-known artists and uh, well-known studios. So you'd have like a head artist and he'd have a whole bunch of assistants and and apprentices and all this stuff. And uh, they would all be working together, creating these masterpieces, whether they were paintings or sculptures or uh, murals. But yeah, I find it very, very interesting that the statues of the ancient world were just beautiful. And then we got all these these crummy statues and uh, crummy paintings and crummy murals until the Renaissance comes along and real (laughs) mastery comes into play. And I doubt also that they would they would live that long, that they wouldn't be weathered down and stuff like we're talking super ancient things where you look at the cities of these places and they're all like crumbled ruins. How did the statues survive so well? And this is soft rock, right? It's carvable rock. So it should not withstand that much weathering and looting and pillaging and all this stuff that supposedly happened, especially in the dark ages where they say a lot of this stuff was deconstructed. That's one of the excuses they, they give for the ruins and stuff. Oh, in the dark ages, everything went crazy and they looted and pillaged and took bricks from this and rebuilt this and all this stuff. So why do all these statues survive almost all of them in perfect condition? 
Yes, exactly. It doesn't hold water. And the same for, you know, to- we're talking about art is the same for science. You know, anatomy, you know, was really studied, uh, started to be studied in uh, during the Renaissance. It's the same thing. Now, also, yeah, in the 6th century BC, uh, Homer uh, mentioned, he doesn't call Greeks Greeks. He calls them Achaeans. Now, in the 13th century AD, uh, the Franks, uh, as I said, founded the principality of Achaia. So it's probably the same thing. You see that Homer was talking about Achaeans and uh, Achaia, it's the same thing. It's the part of the... It's the bar, uh, so-called the barony of uh, Achaia in the Peloponnese, and it's probably something you know. The word probably relates to water, to Latin aqua, and it might be because they came by boat. Eighteen hundred years later, yeah. Are we talking about one and the same era? Another aspect which I studied is the Greek language itself. Now, Homer wrote in Greek, but so ancient Greek now. Ancient Greek is different from modern Greek, but it's not that different. Uh, so I'm quoting here uh, Margaret Alexiou, who's a professor emeritus of modern Greek at Harvard University. And she says, Homeric Greek is probably closer to Demotic, which is modern Greek, than 12th century Middle East, uh, sorry, Middle English is to modern spoken English, which means that English has evolved more in about 800 years than Greek in almost 3,000 years. It doesn't make sense. So, you know, even scholars are surprised that Greeks, uh, Greek evolves so slowly. Now, the question is, has it evolved slowly or are we talking about 13th century Greek? In this case, everything becomes logical, right? Because if Homer or St. Homer, you know, like someone in the St. Homer family wrote you know, invented the story in Greek, we call uh, the Iliad and the other one called the uh, Odyssey. So if they spoke uh, 13th century Greek, that's why the evolution of Greek seems slow. It's just that 800 years have elapsed, not even that, right? But not uh, 2,800 years. This was one of the comments that I got a lot on the video that I made summarizing your book. A lot of people said, you know, I'm Greek and, you know, I can't understand ancient Greek, but I think they misunderstood the point. The point was not that they're very similar. The point is that they're more similar than we would expect given the amount of time because English and other languages have changed much faster in in a shorter period, like 800 years. Like you said, we can hardly understand Shakespeare. And you go back further than that, like, you know, Canterbury Tales and all this stuff. It's very hard to understand older English. And it's not that old. English is not an ancient language. So you've got this supposedly extremely ancient language that is just, it hasn't changed more than the English language in 800 years is the point. It's not that they're very, very similar. Yes. I'm not an expert at Greek, of course, but uh, I suppose also the spelling might be different. And, you know, it's also spelling can be confusing. When you read ancient English, the spelling has changed a lot. And sometimes it's actually easier to understand that, you know, at at first glance, we see that the the spelling is very different. And it's what is he talking about? But it's not that different. I think it, it might have something to do with the spelling. But yes, they missed the point. 
96 century BC, this is Pisistratus. Uh, Pisistratus is called the first tyrant of Athens. Uh, now, the, the name Pisistratos in Greek means he who convinces the army. So my question is, are all these names, ancient names uh, of, you know, Greek like, uh, tyrants or, you know, philosophers, are they nicknames or real names? Maybe they're just nicknames. So the first tyrant is his name coincid uh, coincidentally is the, the man who convinces the army. So maybe it's just a nickname. Now in the 13th century AD, uh, Otto de la Roche takes Athens. So he's the first Frankish Duke of Athens, of Athens and Thebes is the Lord of Athens. And of course, this is the definition of a tyrant because he was coming from Northwest Western Europe and he arrived and he took Athens. So it has to be a tyrant. So we have two tyrants, or not just two, but two sets of tyrants, almost exactly 1,800 years apart. Okay, here it's, to be fair, it's 1,775 years apart. But then I've got two pieces of evidence. Uh, Dante, the, you know, the, um, the Italian poet uh, of the Middle Ages, uh, we are being told that he, ha uh, he transferred by poetic anachronism, the title of great lord of Otho to Pisistratus. So in simple English, it means that he made a mistake. Well, uh, he took Pisistratus or he mistook Pisistratus for uh, Otho. Strange, strange mistake. Now, what is equally strange is that much later in 1707, a man called Fanelli, uh, we are being told because he misunderstood he calls this time Otto the uh, Magaduce Tirano, which means the great tyrannical leader. And uh, again, according to uh, historian uh, William Miller, he made a mistake. He misunderstood. He took this time uh, Otto for Pisistratus. So maybe there is no mistake. Maybe Dante, uh, both Dante and Fanelli was, were right. We're talking about one and the same person. Maybe Otto was a tyrant, he was a tyrant. And then uh, he, in Greek, he came to be nicknamed the, uh, the man who convinces the army. It was just an, a nickname for a tyrant. And he became the great tyrant. So it's probably one and the same person. So us uh, modern people and modern scholars are like, oh, these guys just, uh, they made a mistake here. But who are we to say that that's their time, right? So you're saying that they're speaking about people closer to their time or in their time yeah and they're saying no auto is pisistratus that's that's just that's what they thought exactly especially for dante because if you know dante was writing uh or was making a, a mistake almost at the same time when it was happening uh, so how could he make a mistake so he was probably right uh, in my opinion he was right we're talking about one and the same person these tyrants so uh the first tyrant is Otto, and then he had two sons. I mean, yeah, okay, let's talk about Otto. So Otto uh, had a son called Guy de la Roche, and he himself had two sons, Jean de la Roche and Guillaume de la Roche, Frankish knights. Now, ancient Greece, in ancient Greece, we have almost the same thing. Pisistratus is said to have had two sons, Hipparchus and Hippias. But again, if you, if you look at the etymology of the words, it's, it means more or less uh, leaders on horseback. So men, men on horseback. 
So that's the definition of a, a knight, you know, a tyrant knight who, you know, controls the city or uh, a place, you know, uh, you know, riding a horse. So very similar structures, very similar patterns here, 1800 years apart. Right. Okay. So in the mid 6th century BC, uh, we've got this, uh, you know, uh, Cyrus the Great, or Kurus in Persian, uh, is a you know a hero in uh, Iran because he's uh, like the you know, great king of the past, you know, of antiquity. Is said to be the founder of the so-called uh, Achaemenids, which is a, a, a and is a, you know his empire was gigantic. It included the Mediterranean. And also he loved literature and we are being told he was close to the Jews. Now, oddly enough, in the mid 13th century AD, we've got this uh, uh, king called Charles of Anjou. And uh, now Charles in Latin is Carolus, which looks, you know, which sounds like a bit like Kurus, Carolus, Kurus. And, and, and of course, king in Slavic languages is also uh, Carol. Now, uh, this king was the prince of Achaia, Achaia in Greece, and he spent his life creating a gigantic empire in the Mediterranean, just like Kurus or Cyrus the Great. Also, he loved literature, and he too was close to the Jews. So, and as the two characters, the two per, uh, people are, uh, you know, 1800 years apart exactly, I am wondering, could it be that Cyrus the Great is just a phantom reflection of Charles of Anjou. All right, maybe this is not the most convince, convincing uh, piece of evidence, but I find it very strange that the two guys are so similar. And again, they're very, you know, they're 1800 years apart. And a lot of these people, they only have a few defining characteristics, right? This guy was a tyrant. He had two sons. They were both yep. horse riders. You know, but then this other guy just happens to be 1800 years, 1800 years later. He was also a tyrant with a similar name that both of his sons, horse riders in this case. Yeah, it just happened to both have a Mediterranean empire, happened to love literature and happened to be close to the Jews. Like these are these are not really deep descriptions of people. But yet again and again, we've get we get these repeated characters with similar names. And like you said, some of these times or almost all of them. The ancient Greek name is really a nickname. I'm sure you're going to get to Aristotle and Socrates yeah. and stuff. It's very interesting that that can't be their real name. You don't name someone basically a scholar when they're a kid. That's a name you acquire later in life, or it's a, a name given to a character. And yeah, they just so happen to reflect the biographies and descriptions of people 1800 years later. Yes. And uh, yeah, what's striking is that when you study history, you know, uh, some people, they say, okay, yeah, you're comparing two things, but very different people. Because when you look at the details, they're all different. Everything seems different. But what you know, sticks out is that the main traits uh, of you know, these characters are the same. So the details are different, but you know, the main things they have done in life uh, are the same. So to me, it's a clue that you know, much of what we've learned is, you know, is 
not true it's like it's fiction it's myth it's mythical or uh, it's you know it's it was uh, deliberately or not it was added later or it was you know we made mistake you know but but the the basic things the most important aspects of these characters are the same so in this case it tells us that well they're probably one and the same or you know uh, maybe some of you know uh, part of what Uh, Cyrus the Great was, uh, you know, they took it from Charles of Anjou anyway. Now let's talk about Pythagoras. Now he's sometimes credited with the discovery of the golden ratio, phi. But, you know, it was rather the uh, Pythagoreans, um, uh, his students later, who, who studied it first. Now, what matters here is that the facade of the Parthenon seems to follow the golden proportion, so the, the golden ratio. Now, um, in the Middle Ages, it was uh, Leonardo de, de Pisa who introduced the golden ratio in his book Liber Abaci in 1202. And, uh, well, he also introduced Indo-Arabic numerals in Europe. So this happened pretty late because it was in uh, the early 13th century. Now, interestingly, in 1260, uh, a man called Campanus of Novara Uh, demonstrated that phi, the golden ratio, was irrational. Now, if you subtract 1,800 years from the year 1260 AD, you end up with 540 BC, which is the time when Pythagoras was 40 years old. Now, my question is, the usual question is, did Pythagoras truly, uh, truly live in the 13th century AD? Which would, which would make sense. And by the way, for the listeners, the Leonardo de Pisa is Leonardo Fibonacci. Lots of people are, are familiar with the Fibonacci sequence here. So this is what we're saying. The Fibonacci sequence, so-called the golden ratio, is credited to Pythagoras or the Pythagoreans. But 1,800 years later is when this guy who we actually call Leonardo Fibonacci supposedly came up with it. Exactly. Now, a battle, let's talk about a battle. Uh, in, 400, in 480 BC, there is the, uh, the very famous battle of Thermopylae. Uh, I'm not sure the, of the pronunciation. It opposed King Leonidas, a Greek, to King Xerxes, a Persian. And, you know, it's said to have involved hundreds of thousands of men. And it's about, you know, there is a very famous film called 300, or even two of them made in Hollywood. And the story is about the Spartans or the uh, Spartiates uh, and their bravery that 300 horsemen played a key role in Greek resistance. And later on, you know, like about, about 40 years later after the battle, Herodotus wrote that there were many people, but few real men. Now, 1755 years later, in the Middle Ages, uh, there was a battle called the Battle of Neopatras, which is almost at the same place, about 25 kilometers away from Thermopylae. Now, it opposed uh, so a man called John Ducas, a uh, despot of Thessaly, and uh, John of the Rock, John de la Roche, the Duke of Athens, Uh, to John Ducas Palaiologos, a Byzantine general. And again, we have tens of thousands of men in this battle. And then we are being told that John de la Roche, 
sent a troop of guess what 300 knights and then thanks to the to these 300 knights they won the battle and then we are being told that you know like the cherry on the pie that he quoted Herodotus you know because this battle with these 300 knights won with 300 knights reminded him of the ancient so-called ancient battle of Thermopylae so he decided you know to quote Herodotus uh, on the battlefield like you know it, at a time when you know people you know uh, the pr- print hadn't been invented yet so i find it very very amusing you know that are we talking about one and the same battle uh i think so uh now let's talk about socrates yeah uh, the the greek philosopher so of course he was the professor of plato whom he influenced and he was sentenced to death uh, at hemlock for impiety atheism and the creation of new deities now 18 or almost 1800 years later now if we take uh, you know I, I took the 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 years of death of these people now uh, 1789 years later another man uh, another philosopher died in uh, adrianople he was a jewish professor and he was called uh, elysius and elysius was an expert uh, in kabbalah and uh, you know things like that and he was a professor and he was not the professor of plato but of another philosopher who was called pletho or plethon so virtually the same name as plato and he just like uh, Socrates greatly influenced Plato, Elysius greatly influenced the life and the philosophy of Pletho. And similarly, he was sentenced to death by the Turks because of, quote, uh, his uh, uh, heterodox um, um, religious views. So we have two very, very similar characters again. Now, let's study Plato and Pletho. Now, Plato, uh, as I said, was the student of Socrates. He was the greatest philosopher of ancient Greece. He's the most famous of all. And he created uh, what we call Platonism, uh, which is the material world is an imperfect copy of the, of the ideal world of so-called forms. Now, 1800 years later, Plethon or Pletho is encouraged uh, by Elysius to study Greek philosophy as well. And he becomes, guess what? The greatest philosopher of his time, like the greatest Greek philosopher of the 15th century. And of course, he was a promoter of Platonism. So Plato or Plethon promoted Platonism. And Plato wrote the Republic and the Laws. Now, Pletho wrote uh, a book called The Laws, which we're told was inspired by Plato's Laws and Republic. You know, both were polytheistic. Both founded an academy. You know, uh, Plato was, is said to have founded the academy in Athens. Pletho founded an academy in Florence. They both had very long lives. Scholars think that Plato lived approximately 80 years. Scholars say that... Uh, Pletho uh, lived almost a hundred years, so you know both lifespans are very, very you know 
long for the, for the time. Now, Pletho was exiled to Mistress. We'll come back to this later. And a very interesting aspect of Pletho is that he translated Plato into Latin and encouraged Italian humanists to study Plato, who we are being told was almost unknown in the West, which is a bit strange because Plato is supposed to be, to have been, you know, in the past, the greatest philosopher of ancient Greece. Now, we're being told that in 1400-something, Plato was virtually unknown in Italy, which is illogical. Now, Aristotle was another, of course, Greek philosopher, and he was the student of Plato. And Aristo means noble. Now, in the mid-15th century AD, we have a man called um, uh, Gennadios Scholarios, another Greek philosopher and theologian, and Gennadios means noble. And he was a student of Plethon, of, of Pletho. And indeed, Scholarios means the student, so it's a nickname. So my question is, is Scholarios Aristotle? It looks like he's it's one and the same guy. So we have these three philosophers, 1,800 years apart, who look exactly the same. So look at... Uh, the death, uh, Scholarios died 1,795 years exactly after Aristotle. And this was like the most convincing thing for me, by the way, because it's not just one figure who happens to match up with another figure 1,800 years earlier. You've got three figures in a row, right? You've got the the teacher who didn't write anything and who was sentenced to death. You've got their very famous student who became the most famous philosopher of their time, and then you've got the student of that student, all of which line up basically in the meanings of their names and the general outline of their life. Very, very interesting. The, the odds of this happening by chance, yeah. by accident, or by this being real, to me, is, is zero, close to zero. These seem totally phantom duplicates of people who lived around the 15th century. Yeah, same for me. Virtually impossible. Yes, that, you know, such, you know... Uh, so many coincidences. I, I, I'm not buying that. So it has to be, you know, they have to be the same. Uh, oh, yeah. And it's not finished. Uh, Aristotle creates um, a philosophy called empiricism. So he opposes Plato. He opposes his teacher. And he lived during the siege of Byzantium, which is Constantinople. Now, at the request of Philip II, uh, the man who laid siege to, to Byzantium at the time, you know, in ancient time, ancient times, he becomes the tutor of Alexander the Great, who was the son of Philip II. Now, if you jump 1795 years uh, ahead, Scholarius, uh, his duplicate, is a, was a staunch defender of Aristotle. So Pletho defended Plato and Scholarius defended Aristotle. So same thing, you know, same, same life. He opposes Plethon and condemns him for his polytheistic and pagan beliefs. And he was appointed patri uh, patriarch of Constantinople by Mehmet II. So it's not Philip II, but it's Mehmet II, uh, the, the sultan in Constantinople, the man who took Constantinople in 1453. So this happens almost exactly 1800 years later. Almost exactly the same thing, same place, you know, philosophers, uh, same opposition, 
Well, it defies common sense to believe that this would be a coincidence. So the question is, why, yet again, did all these people live almost exactly 1,800 years apart? Are Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle actually Elysius, Plethon, and Scholarius? And is Plato the pseudonym of Plethon threatened by the Turks and forced into exile? Because as I said, Plethon was forced into exile because his teacher had been, you know, killed by the Turks. So he didn't want to end up killed. So he exiled himself in the Peloponnese. And as I said, in a city called Mistress. And maybe because he didn't want to endanger his own life, maybe he created Plato and maybe it was his pseudo. So which was very convenient. Now, if the Turks would say, okay, we don't like what you're writing, uh, he could say, well, you know, I'm not talking, it's not me, it's Plato. So maybe it's just a, a pseudo. I'm not, you know, I'm still not sure whether Plato and Pletho are, you know, it's one and the same person or if Plato is just a pseudo used by Plethon. Now, in 400, 32 BC, the Parthenon on the Acropolis was inaugurated. Now, 1825 years later, in 1393, Nero uh, I, the Duke of Athens, we are told, bequeaths Athens to the church and of the Madonna of the Parthenon. So the question is, was the Parthenon a brand new building at his time? He wished to be buried there. Let's study a bit more about, you know, let's study the Parthenon. Now, in 1436 AD, a man called Syriacus of Ancona, who was a merchant, an antiquary, and humanist, he was an Italian, he was a traveler, and he's sometimes referred to as the father of archaeology. He said, to be the first so-called scientist to rediscover uh, the prestigious ancient Greek sites, such as Delphi or, you know, Athens. Now, the you know, for those who have the image, this is the first known representation of the Parthenon. Okay, so Syriacus of Ancona wrote in 14, oh, sorry, uh, drew in 1436, the first known or surviving representation of the Parthenon. So this happened 1868 years after the construction of the Parthenon. So no one remembered the Parthenon <laughs> for 1800 years and no one, no one took note of it. No one wrote about it. No one drew it. No one painted it. Exactly. Exactly. Look now, uh, let's, uh, let's quote William Miller again, the historian. Now, according to him, uh, I am quoting here. We have the first, oh, sorry, in 1380. 1380 AD, we have, according to him, the first allusion in the whole range of, of the history of Frankish Athens to the classic beauties of the Acropolis. Now, according to him, the king of Aragon raved the most pre uh, precious jewel that exists in the world and such that all the kings of Christendom together could in vain imitate. Now, what he says here is that from 1204 to 1380, so for about 175 years, no one mentioned the Parthenon. So, question is, did really 1812 years elapse, or 
was the Parthenon only 12 years old when it was first mentioned in 1368, or sorry, in 1380. So in other words, was the Parthenon made, constructed around 1368? This would make sense. That's why nobody talked about it before. Now, around 1395, the Italian notary Niccolo de, Niccolo de Martoni speaks of his visits to the what he calls the Church of St. Mary, which is the Parthenon in Athens. Now, according to Miller, this is the very first account which any traveler has left us from personal observation of its condition during the Frankish period. Now, before that, the Acropolis was generally, generally referred to as the castle or the fort of Athens. Right. Now, Mary, of course, is the virgin. What does Parthenon mean? It means the apartments of the virgin in Greek. Parthenos, right. Parthenos being the virgin. So that's why it's called St. Mary, because it's the virgin. What probably happened is that what we today call the Parthenon was built in the Middle Ages, and it was a church dedicated to the Virgin, Virgin Mary. So that's why it's called the Apartments of the Virgin, which is its Greek name, and it's not ancient, but it's something from the late 14th century, most probably. So uh, it was not 1827 years old at the time. It was probably just 27 years old. It was brand new, almost brand new at the time. Well, this is my hypothesis, of course. You might disagree, but you know that's where the evidence leads me. And the golden ratio used in the Parthenon. Remember that Campanus of Novara in 1260 was the very first, one of the very first Westerners to be interested in phi. Right. So did it really happen like something like 1700 years later or merely 108 years before? Meaning that if the Parthenon was built with, the, with phi, the golden ratio, maybe it's just because it, it had been known for about a century. So now, how could they use the golden ratio uh, like, you know, in 400 BC if nobody knew about the golden ratio? And another interesting thing about the Parthenon is that there is a, what is called, what scholars called, uh, archaeologists called the Old Parthenon. It was it's said to have been destroyed by the Persians in uh, 480 uh, BC, when it was not even completed. Now, interestingly, in the Middle Ages, in the 14th century, in the period called the, the uh, Catalan period, on the Acropolis, the Catalans coming from Spain, they built a chapel called St. Bartholomew. Now, in Catalan, Bartholomew is Bartomeu or Berthomeu, which oddly resembles Parthenon. Um, well, maybe just a coincidence, but I wanted to point that out. So, because the, the interval between the two is 1801 years. Uh, 1,801 years. So are we talking about a true time gap of 1,800 years again, or are we just talking about one and the same thing? The old Parthenon would be the first chapel which preceded the bigger 
Parthenon. And I think we should keep in mind, everyone, that in these times, Renaissance and before, most people could not read and write. The average yeah. person could not read and write. Books were not available to the common person. Books were written by monks and scribes, and they were very time-consuming and laborious, and only an elite group of educated people could actually understand and read. So when you get names that sound similar but don't look that similar, this is why we had all sorts of different spelling in English back then, too. There was no standardization here, and a lot of things were just, it's what you heard. And of course, we know, you know, in especially in like the Romance languages, a lot of the words are very, very similar. They're just spelled slightly different, and over time, they're pronounced slightly different. But a lot of these words sound similar, I think, and, and place names and human names, I think they sound similar because that's mostly how they were transmitted from person to person, orally, not not written. Yes. Now, in the 13th or 14th century AD, we're not sure, a tower was uh, built on the Acropolis. It's called the Frankish Tower. This is a photo from uh, 1872. And uh, unfortunately, this um, tower was destroyed by the German amateur archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann in 1874. So this photo was taken two years before. So uh, it, was, it was destroyed because it was deemed not uh, an antiquity, because it's medieval. This is this we are sure about. It's medieval. It's a medieval tower. Now, uh, it was allegedly built with the stones recovered from the Acropolis, which was, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, or from the, you know, the, the crumbling stones of the Parthenon at the time. Now, was it really built 1700 years after the Parthenon or 100 years before? And that would explain why, um, you know, the Franks were talking not of the Parthenon for about almost 200 years, but they were talking about a castle, the Athens castle. So this tower was probably uh, the remains of this castle, which was built approximately 100 or 150 years before the Parthenon. So they thought this tower, it's like right beside the Parthenon, they thought that this was medieval, so okay, we, we can destroy this. But you're saying they both would have been built around the same time, they're, they're contemporary. Yeah, probably this castle and this tower was built around 1200 something. And this was the castle of Athens. It was built by the Franks, uh, you know, the Dukes of Athens. And then about 100, 150 years later, you know, they, start, they, they built this church, St. Mary of Athens, which became the Parthenon. And Schliemann was, you know, stupid. You know, stupidly enough, he, he destroyed the tower because he was thinking that it was not interesting enough. It was something medieval. And uh, to him, it was not something, uh, you know, that belonged to the what he believed was very, very ancient. Now, paradoxically, it might be more ancient, older than the Parthenon itself, which is still standing today. Now, why do you think this whole site is in ruins. You think there was a cataclysm somewhere in this time after the 1300s? Oh, no, no, that's very easy. Um, um, I think it was the uh, um, the Venetians, yeah, people from Venice, the fleet of Venice, they destroyed, with a cannonball, they destroyed the uh, Parthenon, the, at least the roof of the Parthenon got destroyed, I think, in uh, 16... 
80 or something. I'm not sure about the date, but it's, you know, fairly recent. Now, uh, of course, the structure was supposedly almost 2,000 years old. Now, I believe it was just a couple of hundred years old when it was destroyed. Now, of course, they rebuilt it now, but, uh, or partially, I mean, but, you know, the yeah, it was destroyed by Venetians, I think, in the late, was it the 16th or 17th century? Well, I've, I'll have to look it up. There are a lot of people who believe that the Black Death, the Black Plague in 1346 or 1347 to 1351 was actually the time of a cataclysm and it, yeah. it, it wasn't just a virus. Well, yes, it's very possible. It's something I, I have to investigate because the, you know, there are a lot of things that, uh, you know, I, I can find duplicates also of the plague itself. You know, this Black Death has a duplicate. Now, uh, it's not 1,800 years before, but it's 800 years before. It's the Ju- Justinian plague or something like that in 531 or something, or 30, maybe 536 AD. So if you study these two periods, you know, of the late Roman Empire and the so-called, you know, uh, barbarian invasions, which occurred at the end of the Roman Empire, you, you have duplicates. 800 years later and uh, this you know maybe i will also <laughs> write a book one day about this because it's really interesting thing so so many duplicates also uh, between these two periods anyway now hippodamus of miletus was the inventor of a plan we called we today call the grid plan you know a city plan uh, you know, basically what you have in American cities. The grid plan was not invented by Americans. It's thought to have been invented in ancient Greece. We are told that Greeks and Romans, uh, you know, used it for a long time and then it was forgotten. Well, the interesting thing is that uh, Hippodamus of Miletus is a man who is remembered as the inventor of this plan. Now, did he truly live in, you know, 400 BC something, or did he live 1800 years later, which would lead us to the 14th and 14th century AD? What happened in the south of France in the 14th century AD? Well, approximately 500 enclosed towns with a regular plan, a grid, you know, were invented in the southwest of France at this time. Now, according to Wikipedia, there is an interesting paradox Paradox about them, is that the plan of the, of the so-called Bastide, uh, they say it's innovat- uh, innovative, but it reminds people of uh, what the Greeks and the Romans were doing. And they say that little is known about their origins. Now, if you look at the dates, uh, Hippodamus uh, lived approximately 400 BC. Now, I think he probably lived in the 14th century AD, which is right in the Bastide period, 1800 years later. So was he inspired by them? Well, possibly. Or, you know, one or maybe Greece inspired the south of France or either France inspired Greece, ancient Greece, which is not ancient. Uh, another uh, case of duplicates is called the Navarks. The Navarks during the Peloponnesian War, there was a title called Navarcos in Greek. 
which uh, you know appeared in Sparta. And Navarcos or Navarcos means a ship commander. Now, in 1378 AD, in the Peloponnese arrived the Navarrese Company, people from uh, Navarre, which is, uh, I think, uh, yeah, in northern Spain. Now, these people were a troop of mercenaries, and they arrived by sea. And according to the chronicle of the Moria, which me Moria meaning uh, the Peloponnese, it contains, I'm quoting here, blatant anachronisms. So according to Miller, again, so are we talking about two different things, you know, or just one? So the Navarrese company probably gave the word, the Greek word, Navarcos. And by the way, in Sparta, they had no ships. So why would they call the, you know, some people, ship commanders, if they had no ships? And they would call them Navarcos, which is virtually the same word as the Navarrese company. And there is also this city called Navarino in Greece. It has two names. It's also called Pylos. Now, it was occupied by the Navarrese company in the 14th century. Problem? According to Miller, the city was known by this name for a long time. So he deduces that it is just a coincidence. Well, is it a coincidence, really? Or is Greek chronology distorted, misdated? So the city already existed before the company was there. So the, the city couldn't be named after the company. Well, uh, I think it is just uh, that Miller found some documents, probably that he misdates. When he says that the city was you know, uh, known to have been called uh, Navarino for a long time, I think he's referring to documents which are supposedly uh, quite old, but which are not. Actually, everything is recent, and you know, you know, historians have gotten confused with you know all these uh, misdatings. So the chronology, you know, all the chronology. We're talking about Greek chronology today, but as I said, Roman chronology is misdated, and it's not the same time gap. And other chronologies are misdated with you know other time gaps. So it's it's confusing. So that's why they're talking about coincidences or anachronisms and actually it's just that they were not thinking maybe the dates are wrong ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Another battle which is interesting is the battle, uh, the naval battle of Alesia, which is facing the uh, Echinades Islands in Greece. So there was this navarch, this ship commander called Nicolo the Madman, or maybe or Nicolo, a Spartan, against uh, Timothy, uh, an Athenian. And we are told that after this battle was the end of the remarkable Spartan fleet. So, so maybe there was a Spartan fleet after all. Okay, so let's say there was a Spartan fleet and it's the end of their being remarkable. And it's the beginning of a new Athenian naval power. Now in 1427, so it's 1802 years later, the naval battle of the Achilles Islands occurred, which is of course facing the so-called ancient Alesia. And this time we have Carlo Tocco. So Tocco could be um, you know, a, um, an Italian word meaning the eccentric, so the crazy. And remember, the other one was Nico Loco, and Loco in Spanish means crazy. So it's probably one and the same guy again. And so he was said to be an Italian lord, and he was fighting Demetrios Leontarius, a Byzantine Greek. And again, it's the last decisive uh, Byzantine big victory to take the Peloponnese. So both uh, battles are very similar, same place, same results, and they're 1,800 years apart. And a crazy, a crazy lord. Yeah, and a crazy lord is involved. Yeah, absolutely. So are we talking about one and the same battle? Yeah. 18, you know, 1,802 years later? Really? Now, oh yeah, the place names. Well, you know, usually place names, they get shorter over time, right? So I'm taking here the example, you know, I'm not sure, maybe it's not true, but, you know, historians say that the French city of Lyon uh, used to be called Lugdunum in uh, Roman times. So obviously it got shorter. Now, this is an extreme example, but, you know, you can find this, you know, in many city names with time, you know, words get shorter, right? Now, we are being told that in Greece, uh, in medieval times, you know, when the Franks invaded the Peloponnese, that the place names got not shorter, but longer. So Thebes became, strangely, Estivis. Uh, Lemnos became Stalimene. Daphne was expanded into Dalfinet. Samothraki was became Saint Medraki, and Santorini, the island, became Saint Irenis or Irenis. All right. So this is very strange because usually the names get shorter, not longer. So shouldn't we have the opposite reasoning? So maybe, maybe these are the names. Uh, you know, Estivis is the name given by the Franks which was reduced to Thebes over time by the Greeks. And Stalimine became shorter, Lemnos. Dalfinet became Daphne. And Saint Madraki became Samothraki. And Saint Irenes became Santorini. This and would make much more sense. By the way, we do this in just modern language too, because we're, we're lazy. We don't say Los Angeles, we say LA. We don't say Las Vegas, we say Vegas. You know, even where I'm from, Toronto, <laughs> nobody pronounces it Toronto. They go Toronto. It's just exactly. a, a shorter name. And if you were to only hear that, you would write it differently. You wouldn't write Toronto. 
because nobody says it that way. Absolutely. And here, you know, you know what, what scholars say sounds stupid, actually, because, like, let's say the Franks invade the island of Santorini and, they, you know, they hear the word Santorini and they say they decided to Christianize it and they said, okay, it looks like saint, so let's call it Saint Irenes. So, but it's, I think it's the opposite, which occurred, of course. It, they, they, you know, they, they called it Saint Irenes, and for the Greek, it became Santorini. Now, an interesting case is the case of Sparta. Sparta, again, just like you know, many uh, cities in Greece, has two names. So, Sparta is also called Lacedaemon or Lacedaemon. Now, we are told that out of admiration for the ancient Spartans or Spartiates, the Franks allegedly established themselves on the then already very old ruins of Sparta around 1250 AD. And we are told that they renamed Lacedaemon Lacremony or Lacremony, which is a more Frankish or more French name. Now, three miles away, they founded another city they called Mestres, which is now called Mistress. Remember, that's where Plethon went into exile. However, we are being told that in the 15th century, the traveler Syracuse of Ancona mistakenly, again, mistakenly took Mistress for ancient Sparta. All right. And this error, this so-called error, was repeated on maps until the 18th century. So did really pe did people really make a mistake for three centuries? And did Syriacus, did he really make a mistake? Now, I have a much more simple explanation. Now, the Franks, the Franks took Sparta, which they renamed Mestres, which is a French name, okay? And which logically became Mistress. Mistress comes from the French Mistress. Well, nobody denies that. Now, it's exactly as Syriacus wrote it in his account. All right, so they took Sparta. He didn't make any mistake. And that's why it's shown on, uh, on maps and engraving for three centuries. And three miles away from Sparta, they founded Lacrimony, which became, this is my theory, which became Lacedaemon, which is the Greek pronunciation of Lacrimony. Now, we're not sure about the way Lacrimony was pronounced at the time. We can guess that the R was rolled. So it was something probably like Lacrimony, Lacrimony, and which maybe to Greek ears became Lacrimon, Lacrimony, Lacrimon. Well, that's, you know, and, and in any case, that's a much more simple explanation than, you know, the so called mistake, you know, going on for three centuries. What's this uh, engraving that you're showing here on this slide? Uh, well, yeah, this engraving shows Sparta, uh, which is uh, called Mistra, uh, as I said. So it's supposed to be a mistake. So it's called uh, Mistra or Mistress or Sparta, and it's supposed to be a mistake. But I think it's the truth. I think Sparta was renamed Mistra, Mistress, uh, Mistress, sorry, <laughs> by... Uh, uh, by the Franks. It probably what, dates back from between the 15th or 18th century. What is this word in the middle here? It's it's like a, a lowercase o and then an uppercase i. What does that mean? You know, apparently it means or, or. Like okay. it's, it, has, it had two names, so Mistra or Sparta. So this kind of looks like an 
an advertisement telling you, hey, this place has been renamed or this place has two names. Yeah, absolutely. Which would make no sense if Sparta was really an, an ancient world place. Yeah, but they keep saying, you know, you know, scholars keep thinking it's a mistake that, you know, Syriacus made a mistake and that the mistake was repeated. Uh, now we come into the siege of Byzantium, which occurred in 340 BC. You know, Philip II, as I said, Philip II of Macedon. Uh, so Philip me, uh, he led siege to Byzant- uh, Byzantium uh, at the time, and Philip comes from the Greek, uh, the the one who loves horses. Now his son, famous Alexander the Great, took Byzantium. A few years later, and shortly after, uh, in 322 BC, that's the end of the Athenian democracy. Now, 1787 years later, there was another siege, this time of Constantinople, which, of course, is the same city, by Murad II. Now, Ottoman Sultan Murad II besieged Constantinople in 1422, and then his son, Mehmet II, took it in 1453, the famous fall of Constantinople, ending what is today called the Byzantine Empire. Now, he arrived, he's said to have arrived with his white horse in front or maybe inside Saint Sophia in Constantinople. And that, of course, is the end of the Greek Constantinople, which became Istanbul. Now, two very, very similar events occurring almost exactly 1,800 years apart, once again. So Philip is probably, uh, my guess is that the so-called Philip II is just a nickname, is the man with a horse who took the city. And his real name is for the father, Murad, and the the son, Mehmet II. Now, in the mid-4th century, I just mentioned him, is the time of Alexander the Great, now, Alexander of Macedonia, so uh, Macedonia, of course, is in northern Greece. Uh, Alexander means, literally, in Greek, defender of men. And he's said to have conquered much of Asia. So these, now, two, these two men, Philip, Philip II, which literally means lover of horses, and then his son, which means defender of men, Obviously, this sounds like it could not be a coincidence that these are names that were given to them later, that were written onto them, because you wouldn't be named lover of horses and just happen to love horses. Maybe you will, like someone named Plumber might become a plumber. There might be some correlation there, you know, some uh, influence from your name itself. But then, yeah, what are the chances that Alexander becomes the conqueror, becomes the defender of men? And yeah, the fact that these two duplicate people, the father and the son, have very similar lives, and they just happen to conquer the same city, Byzantium or Constantinople, yeah, exactly 1,800 years apart, or very, very close to 1,800 years apart. Exactly. That could be a coincidence, of course, but that's so many coincidences that I believe that you know every time you have these so-called Greek names, they're actually nicknames. They're just talking by mistake or you know, on purpose, I'm not sure, but, you know, the, of, you know, very different people uh, and, you know, at very different time, much more recent. Now, 
that's very striking for Alexander because in the mid-15th century AD, we have Skanderbeg. Now, his real name is George Castriotti, but his nickname Skanderbeg by the Turks. He was an Albanian lord and is viewed as the, as the uh, Al uh, Albanian national hero for his resistance to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, he followed the military school of the Ottoman Empire with his future Sultan Murad II, who later entrusted him with high military responsibilities. So uh, we have a link here with the people who took Constantinople, just like Alexander. And Skanderbeg won several military victories in Asia. You know, So he really looks like Alexander. He expanded the empire on behalf of the Turks. And then he declared the independence of Albania in 1443. Uh, and then Skanderbeg, having rejected Islam and the Ottoman Empire, becomes the defender of his country and of Christianity in the Balkans and Europe. And Skanderbeg's nickname is thought to be of Turkish origin. The Ottomans called him Iskanderbey, that is to say, Prince Alexander, because we're being told, he reminded them of Alexander the Great of ancient times. But actually, his name is Alexander. is King Alexander or Prince Alexander. So to me, it's very obvious. This piece of evidence is, you know, like, is so telling. This Prince Alexander was not named after Alexander the Great. He was Alexander the Great. And they even sound very similar. Skander, Xander. Yeah, it is the same name. It's the same name. It is, you know, it it's said to be uh, the um, Turkish rendering of Alexander to honor or to, because he, he he reminded them of Alexander the Great of ancient times. Now, in three twenty two BC, a man called Antipater took Athens, and that's the end of Athenian democracy. The Macedonian general Antipater, one of the greatest generals of Philip II and then Alexander the Great, took Athens at the time. So what does it mean in Greek? Well, Antipater means literally like the father. Now, 1780 years later, uh, a man called Turahanoglu, Omer Bey, an Ottoman general, takes Athens. Okay, in 1456, right after the fall of Constantinople. So uh, Athens falls in 1458, five years after uh, Constantinople. And then Mehmed II visits Athens. He's the son of a famous band called Turahan Bey. So please note that he has almost the same name. The first one is Turahanoglu, and the first one was Turahan Bey. And like his father, he was a military commander. Right. He had, he had almost the same name. And then the Parthenon became a mosque. So like the father, he was like his father because he was a military commander and he bore almost the same name. So that's why I think Antipater of ancient time means like the father. So the man who took Athens in 322 BC existed, but this was in 1458 AD. 1780 years later. 
Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's not always 1800 years, but it's more or less. So I think it's the results of different types of mistakes, you know, uh, when you know, different chronologies were compiled, you know, different historians, different places, different languages, different times, you know, they, they, they compiled history. And then when it was all, you know, put together, we can see there is, there's something around 1800 years. It's not always 1800, but it's so close that, you know, it can't be a coincidence. Now, after this, you know, after the fall of, the first fall of Byzantium, uh, we have what we called, or what historians call, the Hellenistic period, you know, from the Greek, from the Hellenes, from the Hellenes. Yeah, the term was created in the 19th century, but, you know, what it means is that in this period called Hellenistic, the Greek culture was dominant from one end to the Mediterranean, uh, one end of the Mediterranean to the other. And it's an age... Uh, characterized by numerous advances in philosophy, science, literature, and art. And it's the diffusion of Greek culture and mixing of Greeks with other populations. Now, isn't that more or less a definition of the Renaissance, which occurred around 1800 years later, depending on you know, the date you, you consider the Renaissance to begin. Some say it began with the fall of Constantinople. Some say it began with the discovery of America by Columbus. In any case, we are very close to 1800 years. And the Renaissance, which is also a 19th century term, is a period where we rediscover literature, philosophy, and the sciences of Greco-Roman antiquity. So it is really a rediscovery. Or is it just one and the same period? Now let's talk about Greek tra uh, tragedy. Greek tragedy is famous, uh, especially because you know uh, a few um, writers wrote plays that are still played today. And the first contest uh, contest of you know Greek tragedy is called the Dionysia. Uh, this occurred in four uh, sorry in five hundred thirty four BC. And the 5th century BC is considered the golden age of Greek tragedy. And it lasted 80 years with three tragedians called uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. Strangely enough, Greek tragedy did not occur in Western Europe until the 15th century AD. Why did it take so long? You know, one might wonder, it defies common sense, right? So the first playwrights in France, England, Spain, and Italy were found 1900 years later. So 1900 or 100 years later. So it you makes know, much more sense that this, yeah. this concept of having these outdoor plays, the, the tragedies, you know, it's basically what it is, a theater, not 1900 years later showing up in another part of Europe, but just a hundred years, just that's a normal time for a, a cultural thing to spread. Why would it just pop up 1900 years later? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. At the time in Europe, you know, you, you had different types of plays, you know, liturgical, uh, liturgical dramas, uh, the so-called miracles that were compositions in verse representing human action, but where the divine element appeared in the outcome and also monologues, uh, monologues and games, which were comedies. So the great Greek tragedians, as I said, uh, 
were uh, Aeschylus, Euripides, and Sophocles. And now, if you skip, you know, if you add 1800 years to that, you are in the mid 14th century. So at the time in Europe, there's nothing like that, right? It's just liturgical, liturgical dramas, miracles, and games. Now, it's only in the 15th century that the first playwrights, you know, begin to appear in France, in England, in Spain, in Portugal, in Italy. For example, uh, Gil Vicente is the first Portuguese literary playwright. He's considered the father of modern Portuguese theater or even Iberian theater because he also wrote in Spanish, right? And uh, Juan del Encina is considered one of the fathers of Spanish theater. So these people suddenly appeared in the 15th century, which is, you know, logical. They probably imitated what was going on in Greece, you know, uh, in the previous century. So in other words, if we had 1800 years to the Greek historical framework, the Western European playwrights directly follow Greek tragedians. Uh, and then, you know, of course, the, you know, print was invented. So they started, you know, to, to print the so-called ancient uh, Greek tragedies. And I think they were not very ancient, but, you know, very recent. Now, uh, we're almost done. Now, let's talk Which about... Which makes a bit of sense, too, by yeah. the way. I know this is kind of just a little, a little quip here, but at the time that the printing press was invented, does it make sense that we would start with the oldest stuff first, or we would start with stuff that happened recently? You know, even today, I have a book review... Uh, account on Instagram. And I know that if I review the new books, something that just came out, something that people are talking about, the post is going to do much better. I'm just saying in general, I know from being a book reader and reviewer, people are way more interested in whatever's recent, whatever's new. You see this on YouTube too. No one cares about a 10 year old video. Everyone wants the newest, the latest, the greatest. So I just don't see it logical that, you know, we would invent this new thing and then, oh, yeah, let's reprint some stuff from 1800 years ago, <laughs> right? It's in in a, a phraseology that wouldn't even make sense to most people, right? Languages change drastically. So why would we print? There's obviously some interest in ancient stuff, but I would think in the Middle Ages, just like today, people would be absolutely most interested in the latest and greatest, the most recent breakthroughs, the, the geniuses of our time. You know, why wouldn't they think that the people in our time which is their time, why wouldn't they think that they were better educated and, you know, more interesting? Of course, right? 1800 years ago, what did they know back then? Let's look at the new scholars, the new information, the new uh, plays and tragedies. Yeah, you have a point. Why would they care about, you know, old stuff? You know, you, you, you invent the printing press, so you want, you know, new things. Why, you know, old stuff, you know, interested in old stuff already? No, doesn't make sense. You're absolutely right. Now, let's talk about heliocentrism, uh, which is the belief that, um, you know, or the understanding that not the earth, but the sun is uh, the center of our system. We are told that in, uh, you know, as early as 270 BC, Aristarchus of Samos uh, discovers heliocentrism. He was not the only one in Greece to, to work, you know, he was not the only scientist, let's say, to, to, to work on this. He just continued the work of other Greeks before him. 
Um, these Greeks are called Philoleos, Ekphantos, Hisetas, and Heraclides. Now, 1784 years later, uh, in Poland, Copernicus rediscovers heliocentrism, we are being told, which was, quote, forgotten for 1800 years, unquote. Again, it's pretty, you know, you can, you know, look it up on the internet. You know, if you read about Copernicus, you know, it's written all over the place that it was forgotten for 1800 years. Well, how is that even possible? Now, in his manuscript, in his first manuscript, there's a very interesting point. He quotes Philolaus, Ekphantos, Hisetas, and Heraclitus, but he does not quote Aristarchus. Why not? My question is, uh, hasn't he heard of him yet? Or maybe Aristarchus has not written his theory yet. Remember that Aristarchus came after the other four. So maybe when Copernicus rediscovers heliocentrism, he doesn't rediscover anything. It's something that is going on at the time in Greece. And Aristarchus has probably not even written his own theory yet. Now, in 1532, a few decades later, Copernicus finishes his manuscript. Now, this time, he briefly cites, in a footnote, Aristarchus. Now, we know that he decides to erase this note, which therefore does not appear in the version published in 14, uh, 1543, after his death, the same year. Okay, but we know that he wrote it because we, you can see it, you know, crossed out on these manuscripts. So this occurred 1802 years later after Aristarchus. So maybe it was just two years, you know, see what I mean? This was exactly the same time. So maybe he saw that in Greece at the same time, he was about to publish his book about heliocentrism. And he says that, okay, there is a Greek who talks about it. And maybe possibly even better than him. So, okay, let's talk about him in a note. Or, well, no, after all, let's not talk about him. I want, you know, all the, <laughs> I want to be, you know, praised myself for that. So let's erase it. You see what I mean? So, so was it really forgotten for 1800 years? Or are we talking about one and the same period? And finally, let's talk about the uh, Antikythera mechanism, uh, which is, of course, a very strange object, which is allegedly made, which was made in about 200 or 100 BC. So sometimes it's attributed to Archimedes, and it's a bronze, me uh, bronze mechanism comprising dozens of cogwheels, and it's an out-of-place artifact because it was it's completely isolated in ancient, so-called ancient Greece. Right, so we know that this object could predict predict eclipses. They um, call this the first computer, right? The first analog yeah. computer. Exactly. Which is it's an very, amazing thing. This amazing yeah. new piece of technology that could be applied to all kinds of different things if it was extended upon. But everyone forgot about it for eighteen hundred years. And the strangest uh, thing is that it's only one of a kind. They can't find. They can't seem to find anything else like it. You know, in this period, in antiquity, there's nothing like it. And I stumbled upon uh, a very interesting YouTube video, which is in French, uh, by a French uh, doctor of physics called Frédéric Lecaire. And in this video, he talks about it. And he thinks that it, 
you know, according to him, this mechanism, first of all, of course, is isolated in the Greco-Roman world. So this, you know, nobody denies that. But he adds something. He says that it has all the characteristics of a late 16th or early 17th century European clock. In other words, you know, when you study the history of clocks in Europe, they start to emerge approximately in the 13th century. And then they get, you know, you know, more accurate in the 14th and 15th century. And in the 16th century, they get very, very good at it. You know, they're all over Europe and they start to make very, you know, elaborate um, mechanisms, you know, clocks like that. So for him, if you compare the, you know, the, the cogwheels to what we have in uh, medieval Europe, there is no doubt in his mind, according to Lefebvre, this so-called ancient Antikythera mechanism has to be something belonging to the late 16th, early 17th century Europe. And unlike me, of course, he never, you know, he doesn't deal with chronology. All right. So when I when you watch his video, it's you know, he's not talking about chronology. He just thinks that the object was grossly misdated, that it's impossible for the ancient Greeks to have had such, you know, a one-of-a-kind uh, computer, that it has to be something that came around the year 1600. And again, if you compare the, you know, the dates, so if the Antikythera mechanism is said to, be, uh, to have emerged around 200 BC, so plus 1800 is 1600 AD. And, uh, and that's the end. So now... Uh, I leave it to you. Well, is the recurrent 1,800-year gap between ancient Greece and medieval Greece just, just an amazing coincidence? Or is Greek or ancient, so-called ancient Greek chronology, you know, grossly backdated about 1,800 years? Right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very, very much, Sylvan. I have a couple of questions and comments. And sure. I'm hoping that we could look at some of the YouTube comments as well, because I'm not qualified to answer them. But you mentioned Scaliger, Joseph Scaliger. And we should also mention the name Potavius, because these two men are largely responsible for what we know of as our modern chronology. What we think of as history, what we're taught as history, was mostly written down by those two guys, those two Jesuits, right? Scaliger and Potavius. This is a big part of Fomenko's thing that people freak out about us you know challenging the chronology meanwhile the chronology rests on the shoulders of these two dudes you know the, n almost no one could read or write back then this was a very elite club of people who could read and write and you know we know things like the victors write the history right so yeah you've got these basically roman roman catholic jesuits who kind of took over things who basically wrote all of world history or most of it. And so since that was already basically written in stone, all the historians following Scaliger and Patavius who came after, they all basically had to fit whatever they found, whatever they discovered, they had to fit it into the timeline as it already existed. Very few, if any of them, big historians actually challenged the chronology itself. So they just had to fit things into the, the chronology as it stood. Am I correct on that? 
Yes, absolutely. You know, many people say that, you know, after them, yeah, the Jesuits are at, this, at about the same time, they, you know, they went all over the world and uh, they, they, they tried to make the, the histories, the different, you know, chronologies they found fit the so-called Scaligarian chronology, which was created by mistake or uh, deliberately uh, to, you know, as a compilation of all the histories, but we now know, we at least we think that is completely wrong. So, is it by mistake, or did they want you know Europe to look older than the rest of the world? There is a very strong possibility that Jesuits uh, wanted Europe to be the inventor of everything. Uh, that's why Greece and Rome, which were probably uh, recent if not to say contemporaneous, <laughs> they wanted to make it look like it was very old, like uh, there was, you know, uh, a glorious past in Europe. So it might be deliberate. And, um, yep. There's a hint of racism here too, because as far as I can tell, it was the Chinese that created a lot of this stuff way before. But if you if you go and shuffle the history back, 1800 years more or less then okay now you came up with it first right uh, it wasn't the chinese it was europe yeah pr- probably a lot of things that we find we find in uh, in europe a lot of inventions actually come from uh, china and we know that that many things were brought from china like powder like paper and and of course now if you say that greece is much older than the middle ages so it looks like Many, many things were invented in Europe, whereas they were invented in the Middle East, in China, and, you know, uh, by Arabs and, you know, Persians. And and maybe, you know, Europe, it's, you know, it's just a fraud in a way. So if it was deliberate, you know, this chronology, it's, it creates for Europe a glorious past that didn't really exist or it's, which is at least, you know, much more recent. Absolutely. Okay, controversial question here. People ask me this all the time when I cover Fomenko and stuff. What do you think about the Bible? Was it also written 1800 years later or some other time jump? Well, again, I must stress that, you know, it's not always 1800. The the gap is, you know, um, differs from, you know, one place to, to another. We know that Greek history was probably sent back 1,800 years uh, earlier than it should be. Uh, and as I said before, the, the, you know, the barbarian uh, invasions, they were sent back 800 years. Now, according to Fernco, uh, Rome was sent back about 1,100 years uh, earlier and so on. So, you know, the time gaps are different, you know, depending on the place you're talking about. So it's just... Uh, it's complicated. The Bible was probably uh, written much more recently as well. The biggest problem of all is, you know, uh, um, carbon dating. So it's difficult to to say. I'm not an expert on the Bible, but my guess is that it's much more recent too. It, it can't be as ancient as it's, you know, it is claimed to be. And they're trying to carbon date like stone tablets and clay tablets and stuff, right? So the age of the clay doesn't tell us much. You can you can scribe something on an old piece yeah. of stone or an old piece of papyrus or and and yeah, as you said, the and this is what Fomenko says too, at the end of each one of his books, they say if you can 
prove that any of these carbon or radiometric dating and any of these types of isotope dating is correct, then, you know, we're happy to revise our theory here, but we can make no data claims from faulty data systems. And that would be a whole nother topic there. But there's a lot of problems with these dating techniques. They do not agree with each other. And we have to have some reference point. Like you have yeah. to know something is 100 years old to be able to calibrate your dating techniques so that it agrees. But the problem is none of our dating techniques agree. Things that we know are exactly this old, like lava that was formed right now, you know, it, it could date it to millions of years old. And then the next type of dating can date it to 30,000 years old. It's just, it's completely all over the place. It's complete junk. So we try to date these ancient artifacts with these carbon dating and other methods. It's bogus. So then all we have is this Scaligarian timeline, right? And now we fit objects into the timeline matching up with other things in the timeline. But if the timeline itself is incorrect, then yeah. we're also wrongly ascribing these things to these periods. Yeah, they claim it to be an exact science, you know? Well, they they keep saying that it's, uh, you know, completely v- checked and verified that uh, there is no doubt that radiocarbon tells the truth now but if they calibrate on on the assumption that greece is 2500 years old and that rome is 2000 years old if they you know they take it for granted that uh, and they calibrate their you know everything on that so they must be wrong so i think that's why we end up with these you know these crazy dates but you know everything is probably much more recent and uh I'm, I'm sure the Bible follows this principle. It was probably made a few hundred years ago as well. It has to be. In the Renaissance period or just before? Yeah, yeah, well, probably just before, yeah. Okay, Sylvan, I want to look at some comments here. Okay. Because I tried to summarize your book. You did it very well. It's a very nice video. Thank you. I tried to do it in a more timely manner here. I felt the video was getting long, but there's a lot to say. and. Even what you did in the um, the presentation here, that still just scratches the surface. You've got so much detail in your book. I really, really appreciated it. So we've got 334 comments here. Yep. Homeric Greek is super tough to read, right? So this is the same thing that I was saying earlier. People are saying, oh, you know, yeah. but it, it's not that similar. But we're not saying that it's similar. We're saying it hasn't changed as much as we would expect to. Well, yeah, but, you know, I am not saying it's similar. Margaret Alexiou, Harvard, you know, scholar says it. She says it's, you know, it's incredibly close to modern Greek, right? And, you know, I've read, uh, I I read somewhere else that when you read ancient Greek, I'm not sure about the book, but uh, the the historian I think I'm quoting was uh, reading the uh, ancient engravings, you know, in a, in the ruins in Greece, and they said that it was easy to understand. So, of course, it's not similar. It depends on you know, what you're talking about. Now, it doesn't look like 3,000 years uh, evolution. That's the point. Yeah, you've got another person here saying ancient Greek is closer to modern Greek than old English to English because it wasn't yeah. invaded and ruled by foreigners as many times. It sounds like it was invaded and ruled by no, foreigners. It's, this is not true. This is not true. Of course, it's it's been invaded many times. No, no. We've got a Greek here saying, I support your channel. Keep it up. <laughs> okay, great. 
And someone here, yeah, wouldn't radioisotope experiments on archaeological evidence from that time prove that ancient Greek civilization did, in fact, exist during the time it is dated back to? Well, yeah, not yeah, if the well, dating is bogus. Bogus. It is bogus. It has to be. Otherwise, you know, everything that I said today is a coincidence. And what are the odds? What are the odds? Incredible odds. And yeah, I said Fomenko and many others have serious problems with the dating techniques. As do I. This is bogus science. It's not, they don't even agree with each other. What are we talking about here? Yeah. They don't agree with modern objects and modern lava and so on. And so this guy still comes in. Uh, people just have such a hard time with this. O okay, well, it's it's not accurate, but I don't think that means dating is useless. But yes, it does. It's not accurate, yeah. so it's totally unreliable. That's exactly what it means. Well, calibration is not accurate. That's why they... That's why it's wrong. And people, another person here, just I'm a quarter into the video. May I ask what's unreliable about physically or yeah. materially dating the potential historical records and artifacts? Because we don't have a system to reliably date things. We have to go by the chronology and by known history. There are well-known difficulties with these dating methods. There are numerous cases where rocks that are known to be young are erroneously dated to be old by radiometric methods. For example, volcanic rocks from New Zealand's Mount Garahoe were radiodated by a respected laboratory. Despite the fact the rocks were known to have been formed during eruptions less than 50 years earlier, potassium-argon dating yielded ages for the rocks ranging from less than 270,000 years to 3.5 million years. Realizing this problem, Darwinists developed isochron dating to try to work around it. However, in attempting to clear up the Mount Garahoe results, the isochron dating actually made things worse by a factor of over 70 million. Moreover, there are other cases where different radioisotope clocks, and even the same clock applied to different parts of the same geological formation, often yield dramatically different ages. Radiometric dating has never been validated against the absolute known ages of rocks. Consider Mount St. Helens. This volcano erupted in the 1980s, giving scientists the opportunity to date the rocks that were formed from the eruption. The results? Five different ages, all between 350,000 and 2.8 million years old for rocks that we know were less than 30 years old. Carbon-14 should be totally undetectable after about 90,000 years, according to scientists. Yet, carbon-14 has consistently been found in specimens that were radiodated to millions of years old. In fact, carbon-14 is found in abundance in coal allegedly ranging in age from 35 million to 315 million years old. And, carbon-14 has even been found in diamonds that are dated to over a billion years old by radiometric dating. Back in 1949, an article came out in Natural History magazine that said the lower leg of a mammoth dated 15,000 years old, but the skin dated 21,000 years old. It didn't work in 1949. 1963, a living mollusk shell, carbon dated at 2,300 years old. Well, here we are 14 years later, carbon dating is still not working. 1970, this article came out and they said, if a carbon date supports our theories, we put it in the main text. If it is not entirely contradicting, we put it in a footnote. If it's completely out of date, we just drop it. 1971, a freshly killed seal carbon dated at 1,300 years old. Still not working, folks. 1975, a baby mammoth was found frozen. Part of it dated 40,000 years old. Another part was 26,000 years old. And the wood next to it is 9,000 years old. 
Still not working in 1975. 1981. They tried it again. This guy said, no matter how useful it is, the radiocarbon method is still not capable of yielding accurate and reliable results. There are gross discrepancies. The chronology is uneven and relative, and the accepted dates are actually selected dates. This whole blessed thing is nothing but 13th century alchemy. It all depends upon which funny paper you read. Still not working. 1984. Shells from living snails were carbon dated at 27,000 years old. Still not working. 1985. They took 11 human skeletons, the earliest known human remains in the Western Hemisphere, and they were carbon dated or dated by accelerator mass spectrometer, all 11 dated 5,000 radiocarbon years or less. Here these things are supposed to be, you know, a quarter million years old or something. It's not working in 1985. 1992. Two Colorado Creek mammoths, side by side, buried frozen mammoths, were dated. One was 22,000 years old, the other is 16,000 years old. Still not working in 92. In 19. 96, Berkeley University, they've got the Geochronology Center. Carl Swisher used the most advanced techniques to date human fossils. This article said last spring he was reevaluating Homo erectus skulls found in Java by testing the sediment found with them. A hominid species assumed to be an ancestor of Homo sapien, erectus was thought to have vanished a quarter million years ago. Even though he used two different dating methods, Swisher kept making the same startling find. The bones were 53,000 at most and possibly no more than 27,000. Well, I would like to point out, Your Honor, that is a 96% error. So it's not working in 1996 either. Yeah, this made me scratch my head, you know, many times, but it has to be bogus because they assume that it's that old. So uh, their calibration is crap. Yeah, there might be some way to, to fix isometric dating and whatever but right now it's garbage so yeah and it would totally scramble it would it would totally mess with academia as it is because yeah almost everything would have to be redated everything beyond the renaissance oh by the way have you heard of a, a man called florin dachu dachu he wrote a book called, uh, he's a Canadian, by the way, of uh, Romanian origins. And he wrote a book called The Lost Millennium. And I, I, I just finished it. You know, I, uh, I've heard of it. I had heard of it for many years and I just read it recently. And it's probably one of the best books on chronology ever written because it's very unbiased and I don't want to spoil it for you, but let me just say this. He studies Fomenko and he studies chronology and he's a very, very serious scholar. And so the way, you know, the chapters and the research he's done is absolutely uh, impeccable. It's very, very serious and very interesting and very e easy to read. And he can't prove it wrong. The point is, I don't want to spoil it more than that, but he he can't, you know, he can't prove that it's wrong, that the theory, that Fomenko's theory or mine, uh, he doesn't talk about me, but he can't prove it's wrong. He, he tries very hard, but he can't. Very, very cool. I'm going to check that one out. It's a very good book. It's, it's probably one of the best on the subject. And I, it's a shame I discovered it only this year, but it's better late than never. Okay, someone here. This is fascinating, but you bring up Strabo, who would have lived in the first centuries BC and AD, who said that the Odyssey may have taken place in the North Atlantic. Yes. I've heard this as well. 
How could he have made such an objection if the Odyssey was fabricated by the Omers? Simple is that Strabo, he's misdated too, right? Strabo, uh, I think he was a Roman, right? Or was he a Greek? I'm not sure. But in any case, Strabo belongs to what is today considered to be the first century BC. And this doesn't work with the 1800-year gap. It's like you have blocks of time, and this block, the Roman block, it's like first century BC is Roman time. And this is misdated, but not by 1800 years. So Strabo probably lived, uh, it had to live after uh, the St. Omer's. So my guess is that Strabo is a writer from maybe the late 14th century or the early 15th century or something like that. Fair enough. And I think a lot of people have not read Fomenko here too, so they really don't understand the the general concept of these phantom duplicates. Oh yeah, the, the books are so big. And uh, the, yeah, but I think he made shorter books now. There are... But there yeah. are so many books, so many available. I've been reading the short ones, and I yeah. think I should have started with the bigger ones. So you've got a lot of people here who, you know, go into sort of a they attempt a full refutation here. This population constituted the majority in the territories that today form the Hellenic state and its surroundings. Historian Arif Mati. See, I'm not sure if any of this is even relevant if they're not believing the timeline shift, right? One of the prominent figures of contemporary ancient history after studying the authors of antiquity affirms it is clear that the greeks upon their arrival were very much in the minority in a country populated by numerous pelagian tribes with names different but speaking the same language the evidence of the arrival of the greeks and being a minority although witnessed by the ancient historians themselves is overlooked and left in silence in the studies of today both albanian greek and european so I'm, I'm not sure how that refutes the idea of ancient Greece. If anything, that seems to yeah. prop it up more because the Greeks, if they were indeed a recent arrival in a minority in the territory of Greece, how does that make ancient Greece more likely? Doesn't that make it more likely that the stuff we ascribe to ancient Greece is actually a more recent Greece? Yeah. The Greeks themselves were recent. Well, it's a very long refutation. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I don't, I don't know if this is relevant at all. The Byzantine Empire were actually empires within the Albanian as a daily language. Okay. So what? How does this refute the idea that the, the time jump? I don't there? know. Hmm. Anyways. Yeah, you said another one here. Just, this guy can reach Oh, yeah. Look, um, look down here. The next one. Skanderberg. They're talking about Skanderberg. He's, you know, uh, Iskandar. Uh, Alexander the Conqueror could have been a Viking wearing a two-horns helmet. Well, this is interesting because in the Quran, Alexander the Great is referred to as the two-horned uh, one. And this I talk about in the book. And, the, you know, so he, he did have two horns. And, you know, at least when he was um, on the battlefield, which is very interesting because uh, Skanderberg, uh, is depicted sometimes with these two horns. So, yeah. Yeah, a lot. I read a lot of these too, and I just couldn't understand how they were actually refuting the chronology shift. And yeah, we're not going to go through word for word, but 
I just think a lot of these people don't understand what Fomenko's actual theory is. And so, yeah, he's kind of talking well, about Fomenko there. We're not going to go and refute him. To me, you know, it's so many coincidences that, okay, they j- just can't be coincidences. The odds are too, you know, uh, high. I mean, it's impossible. So we have to find an explanation, right? So if they are not coincidences, apart from misdating Greek chronology, I can't think of any other explanation that can explain all these duplicates all over the place. No, it's so much simpler to assume that they are duplicates, that they are written either purposefully or mistakenly in a time period they don't belong. But it's the same sequence of events or the same people, the same biographies, just transplanted with a different name and often a name that means the thing that they did, right? The nickname just transplanted backwards. And I do think most of this would have been done on purpose, like you said, and like Fomenko says, to kind of reinforce their superiority you know the the greeks or the romans the romans in particular we still live in the roman empire basically yeah and and the you know the roman ch- uh, the church right they probably according to laurent guillenot whom i quoted earlier the one who wrote anno domini the the popes created uh, an uh, antiquity uh, of uh, popes who according to him did not exist to make them look like they're, you know, very, like the church is, you know, the Christianity is very old, mm-hmm. which is not. This one here, ancient Arabic and oral languages date back to the ancient times. Herodotus refers to the Arabs. Kadrites and Nabataeans are example of Arab-speaking people. This is way before the timeline that is usually referred to. Yeah, but you're saying Herodotus is misplaced. Yeah, Herodotus probably uh, lived in the 13th century AD. So if he refers to the Arabs, uh, well, yeah, that's logical in a way. Yeah, it's logical. Why not? Yeah, I don't see why not either. And I've read most of these over the last couple of years, and I just didn't understand how most of these people were actually refuting. Oh, my God. Yeah, I have to to read them. I haven't. Uh, Yeah, it's a lot of stuff homer's greek is very different than plato's greek and completely different than modern greek yeah we're not saying they're the same well yeah they that's what they say but unfortunately i don't speak greek so i can't i can't help i'm just pointing out you know uh, quotes showing that it's not that different now of course yeah why didn't greek evolve so much right it's this is strange in itself no, if the conventional chronology is right, why didn't Greek evolve more like other languages? So here's one. How does the anecdote that Homer was blind and that there was Saint Omer in France who was also blind prove that they're one person? But it wasn't just the fact that they were blind. It was the fact that the Omer or someone in the Saint Omer clan was giving out these or writing these same uh, stories, right? The Iliad and the Odyssey. Is, is that correct? They were written yeah. by the Omers? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just that, you know, you can't find any Homers, you know, in Greek history apart from Homer and the St. Omers. So it's a funny coincidence that they come from St. Omer, which is said to have been named by a bishop who became blind. So it's, of course, you know, they are not the only people in the world who 
became blind, but it's not everybody who, be, who becomes blind, right? So it's a funny coincidence. It's just, and it's not just that. It's uh, if you take the Odyssey, for example, it really looks like tales belonging in Northern Europe. Uh, they're talking about the midnight sun, rough seas, gray skies, and doesn't look like the Mediterranean. Many people have written books about it, like an Italian called Vinci, Felice Vinci, or something like that. Another one uh, uh, who, you know, many people wrote books about the Odyssey taking place not in the Mediterranean, but in Northern Europe. So yeah, the Mediterranean is calm seas. And blue skies, not gray skies. In general, and, and yeah. You don't get in the general. midnight sun. And... and the midnight sun, certainly not. <laughs> and Homer is not a Greek name. That's one of the weird things. You ever heard of a Greek Homer? Yeah, yeah. It's the only one. It's the only one. Apart from the St. Homers, yeah, it's the only one. So it's a funny coincidence that, you know, I, I challenge anyone to find duplicates you know, not, not just one, but, you know, a set of duplicates, just like me, uh, with another time gap, let's say 1,000 years, or let's say 500 years, or 1,600 years, right? No, it's always 1,800. It's impossible to find duplicates uh, of that many with a different time gap. Just way too coincidental, cherry-picking and manipulation. Uh, These people are just so upset. They're so well, upset by this subject. And I, I know, yeah, I understand. It challenges. Well, cherry-picking. Yeah, cherry-picking. No, I am not cherry picking. I, you know, I'm you know I'm covering you know the key facts of ancient Greece, right? I talked about the Parthenon. I talked about Plato. I talked about uh, Homer. The key facts, the you know the, the the most important battles, and every time you can find a duplicate in the Middle Ages. Every time, so I'm not cherry picking anything. I got to watch some of these other videos here. Greek history, all fake, made in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, oh, this is popular is, yeah. now. I think you set off something here. Well, well flamenco yeah, so, as well, but I think a lot of these people are talking about your book as well. Some people think that everything is fake. All right. Now, to be fair, a lot of things are fake. You know, in the Renaissance, a lot of statues uh, have been created uh, and 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 manuscripts. You know, which are said to be or which were said to be very ancient and which were not. Okay, so fakes exist, and it's part of the solution, right? But not everything is fake. You know, some people think that, you know, there are groups uh, on Facebook. They claim that everything in Greece, for example, was created, the ruins, everything, in the 18th, 19th century or 20th century. Everything is fake. I don't believe that. Many things are fake, but not everything. Yeah, like I, I just some people also are mistaken. so mistaken here. If Plato never existed, does that mean you mustn't read the works? We're not saying Plato didn't exist. We're saying no. it's probably a guy named Pletho who lived 1800 yeah. years beyond Plato. The, and the he feared exist. for his life. He the, feared, the, yeah, you didn't want to be to end up killed like his teacher. So he probably took this, you know, pseudo and he's the real author of Plato and he lived almost 100 years. And that's, you know, Nobody denies that, that, you know, it's a great, it was the greatest philosopher of the 15th century in Greece. Yeah, these, I don't know, does that mean Plato doesn't exist? No, no, he did exist. It's just, this is a character who is taking credit for a more recent person. And yeah, I, I like that um, explanation that Pletho invented Plato 
to save himself. Like, no, 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 I'm just teaching Plato's work, yeah. not my own work. Just coincidence that we have the same name, basically. Someone here, hardly anyone can understand Shakespeare. It's literally on the primary school syllabus in this country. Yeah, that doesn't mean we understand no, but, it. Yeah, had, that's true. We had to read Shakespeare and then spend the whole rest of the class. Like we would read like a page or two and then talk about how, what those mean. Cause none of us know what it means yeah. because it doesn't make very much sense to us. And yeah, we were, we're not saying that uh, it's not understandable. We're saying it's difficult to understand the lang- Just that's an example. The language has evolved since the time yeah. of Shakespeare and we don't well, talk like, like that anymore. We don't talk like they did in the 1800s. You'd hear kids today the Generation Z, I can't understand a lot of what they're saying. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Shakespeare created many words, and there's a theory that he was a Jewish-Italian uh, uh, emigrate uh, who arrived in England and who took this pseudo-Shakespeare. Uh, but yeah, he created many new English words coming from probably Italian, if the theory is true anyway. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to comment on every single... Uh, one of these things to Plato is an anagram of a plot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. The term Greek never appears in medieval times, nor does it appear in antiquity. It is a word coined by Johann Gustav in 1836. Oh, the, this, I don't know, might be true, but yeah, as I, you know, as you point out in the video, yes, there is this, you know, these names that, you know, come and go and, you know, Hellenes and then they call the Romans and then they call Hellenes again and then the Romans. Uh, everything seems to happen twice. Mm-hmm. There is no credence to Plato and other classics being Renaissance frauds because we know they were very popular amongst the learned in Constantinople in the late Roman Empire. Well, sir, the late Roman Empire seems to be a phantom duplicate of the more recent Roman Empire and the Renaissance. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the Roman Empire is probably much more recent. And that's why, uh, you know, in the early 19th century, uh, Greeks referred to themselves as the Romans. All right. They started to call themselves the Greeks or the uh, Hellenes again, you know, right after their independence, which was orchestrated by English and French people in in the 1820s. but, But before that... They call themselves the Romans. So the Roman Empire is probably very recent. Yeah, I I said it before. We still live in the Roman Empire, I do believe. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this person asked something that I asked, basically. So since Alexander the Great is mentioned in the Bible and the Quran, that means these documents are misdated too? Yeah, they they have to be, yeah. Even Plutarch saw similarity in famous people and wrote a book of great emperors generals with parallel lives where he described that the life of a famous greek general like alexander and then couple it with a famous latin or roman general like caesar yeah a lot of these people are probably duplicates of each other because the same little group of people wrote all of this right the batavius and, and scaliger yes so the conquest of persia by alexander is a phantom of caesar's conquest of gaul or something well this i don't know yeah, I'd say, yeah, Iskander, uh, sorry, um, Skanderberg is Alexander, for sure. Okay. Like I said, we're not going to read all of this stuff. In the past, I've read and um, replied to some of these. It's a lot of reading, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 people get really riled up about this, this uh, <laughs> topic. And this is one reason I kind of pulled back from making these videos. Like, I'm in the health business. This is, this is not yeah. my business. This is just for fun. 
I liked making mud flood videos and I liked making these, you know, hidden history videos, but it's time consuming and it's not my expertise and it's not going to be my expertise. I study nutrition, you know, so yeah, I just it is very complicated. People yeah. get so upset and you know, I don't really care if people get upset, but I'd like to have answers for them too. But it doesn't matter. I just see how inflamed people get. Well, what do you mean history is fake? Like, why does it matter? To me, it only matters that, you know, we got to stop believing what they write in textbooks, not just from this uh, history, but from everything. You know, the way they're going to write 9-11 in books right now yeah. in history is that, you know, some people from caves orchestrated this and they did it with the box cutters and their their passports su survived yeah. the fireball. And that is what Same is going thing. to be written. It's fake. It's fake yep. history being written right now. Stuff that's happening right now is being written in a way that didn't happen. It's a lie. So this just matters in the sense that we shouldn't trust the information that comes from above, that comes basically from the Holy Roman Empire still, right? That's what our textbooks are backing up, this whole fake history, and it's not just history. So the only, the only thing that matters to me is understanding that whatever is in a textbook is a lie. Basically, almost every single thing that's in a textbook is a lie. And they're creating fake history now. And we need to stop giving it our attention because the beast, the monster, the system is fed from our attention. They control us with our attention. This is how they were able to shut down the world in 2020. It's because we believed them, right? They said, trust the science. Well, I would not trust the science and I would not trust the history because these all came from the same cabal of people who control the world, basically. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, uh, when you, I'm not a historian either, but when I, you know, it's the same for me. When I see all these duplicates, you know, I, uh, there is something going on. So it's exactly, you know, when you study the present, you know, it, it, it's same thing. You see how it's going on in the present. So you, it's easy now to imagine how it went on in, in the past, that, you know, you can easily fake history, okay? Especially so in the past when people could not check anything, you know, people would believe anything. Today we have, you know, with the, thanks to the internet, we can have a much more critical eye. We can see things that are going on. A lot of people, you know, they, they, they don't believe the things they hear in the media because, it's you know blatant lies. You can see things going on, fakery going on. So it's easy to, for me now to understand how they, how easily they could fake the past or made, make mistakes. But it's not only mistakes, of course. It's all. It's not just mistakes. And even now, you can see the lies happening from a relatively large group of people. It's not the tiniest group of people ever. But back then, you only got two dudes. Scaliger and Patavius, and yeah, yeah, probably a handful of others, but it's such a small group of people that gave us our entire history, basically. And now everyone else has to fit it into their history. Well, yeah, just a few decades ago, when you have no internet, imagine how the you know what the world was like. It was so easy to be led. I mean, you know, people told you something, well, you just believed it. I mean, talking about history, you know, who were you to deny anything, right? So you believe what was written in the books or what your teacher said, right? Or what they showed you on TV, right? Oh, we went to the oh, yeah. moon. Here's a, here's a video. <laughs> oh, there are so many, you know, things we could talk about, but, you know, it's just... Yeah, I think we... people get the point here that if they can fake yeah. things right now, it was going to be much easier to fake things back then, especially oh, yeah. when the majority of people could not read and write until like yes. 150 years ago. Oh, yeah. And even then, illiteracy is coming back around. People are worried about this right now that 
there's a lot of people out there that can't read. They're going to school and they can't read. They can't write properly. So, right. yeah, we're not going to go through every single comment. There's too many. I appreciate everyone who commented and joined in this debate here. And I think there's going to be a lot of comments on this video here since we're approaching three hours now, Sylvan. Wow. I hope giving people this extra information and this extra context and maybe for some of them rewatching it, I hope this gives them yes. a, a better understanding of the theory that we're actually talking about here. And we don't have to have all the details correct, by the way, even though Fomenko's put a lifetime into this now, and you've put quite a lot of work into figuring this out for us too. And now there's other people, like you showed this other book here. Um, yeah, I, I'm not claiming, you know, I'm not claiming to to hold the truth, right? I'm just showing stuff, you know, for people to study. All right, you know, do your own research. Don't believe me. Just, you know, try to explain all these duplicates because there must be an explanation. You know, a few of them, okay, you could argue it's a coincidence. Now, I think today we've shown so many that, you know, it's just impossible if any honest person will admit that it's not a coincidence. So uh, I am suggesting that Greek history has been misdated. Now, you know, people, you know, can have different explanations. You know, I'm open to debate, right? Absolutely. And I appreciate your honesty and openness. And you never came out here claiming to be a 100% expert. This is the product of your research. And once again, I really liked this book the first time. I liked your updates as well. And this is a great price too. I just love, I love saying that. I love a good value. <laughs> the Fomenko books are, they're great, but they're not cheap. I've spent a lot of money on Fomenko books now, and there's still a pile left to read. So for $14.99, your paperback here, what a great deal. It's among the best. Well, there's not very many alternative history books out there, but it's definitely the best one that I've written. And that's even con including Fomenko because Fomenko, you know, he's a native Russian speaker and it's just, it's a little bit difficult to understand him. And some of his books are quite small. Basically, there's like a hundred pages of references and it's good to have references, but it means that there's not that much actual book there, right? I would appreciate yeah. more meat inside the sandwich. And your book, like I said, it had the perfect amount of meat in there. It wasn't too short. It wasn't too long. It was very, very enjoyable. It wasn't rambly. It didn't talk down to people. Just overall great. I would still give it 10 out of 10. Still very, very impressed. And I very Thank much, you so much, Ryan. Thank you. Yeah, I very much appreciate you joining me here as well. You didn't have to do this. I know you're a little bit hesitant to do it in the first place, but I bugged yeah. you about it. And I'm super glad. I know a lot of people are going to be super glad that we did this too. Yeah, hopefully, yes. And if you do get that uh, Roman book done or any other work done or you ever want to come back, you're you're always welcome. I'm sure my audience is going to be uh, asking me tons and tons of questions too. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, Mr. Sylvan Tristan, I appreciate you so much. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having me here. And thank everyone else for listening. Take care. Okay, take care. All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Very interesting to me. And I'm hoping to do another one with Mr. Tristan. He says he has another presentation for me on a different topic. So look forward to that. Stay tuned, of course. Remember that all of these episodes are archived on my website, notusbooks.org. In case you ever come to search for this podcast and it's not there, we did get taken down before. It's possible we will get taken down again. 
Now, I don't think the powers that be have a problem with this subject because it doesn't really cut into their wallets at all. But since most of our episodes, most of our content is about health, that most definitely does cut into the pockets of big tech. And there is definitely a deliberate effort to silence it. And that's not a conspiracy theory. Most of the big platforms have come out and said, yeah, we are censoring material that goes against mainstream medicine. And before I sign out here, I do want to talk about that just a little bit. And the rise of homeschooling. Let's get to that first, because this was an alternative history episode here. And of course, this is what they teach you in school. This is what they teach your children in school. They do not teach you both sides of an argument. They tell you vaccines are good for you. They don't tell you the opposite theory behind them, that they're harmful. They tell you that history is fact, period. They do not tell you any of the problems with the timeline. They don't really describe where the timeline came from, etc. They give you one side of the coin. And my mom's a teacher, actually. She's been a teacher my whole life, and now she's retired, so she's a substitute. And in recent years, she's actually become more of a conspiracy theorist than I am. And she's told me, yeah, I have a big problem with the fact that we cannot tell children anything other than what's in the curriculum. You can get fired or worse if you tell them what you think is the truth. And I think a lot of people have come to realize that because there's all these headlines about the rise of homeschooling. Since the pandemic and even after, a lot of people never put their children back into school. And I've been saying, I think it's because of the pandemic itself pandemic woke up so many people, that the government is not our friend, that the corporate partners of the government are not our friend, that the people who write the material for the curriculums don't have our interest at heart, and so they never put their children back into school. Tons of these articles here I've got in front of me. I just typed in the rise of homeschool, and there's tons of articles. I'm here in Texas, so more Texans turned to homeschooling after the pandemic showed them what learning outside of schools could be like. Yeah, I hated school. To be honest, it was torture for me. I resented it every single day. I got kicked out twice. And during one of those times that I was expelled, they let me do homeschooling. So a teacher would come by and drop off the material for the week. And honestly, I was done it in like a day, two days. Because school goes at such a slow pace. There's not actually that much material in the curriculum. Years ago, I dated a girl who homeschooled her child and... Yeah, same thing. Basically, the curriculum was done by Monday, Tuesday, maybe Wednesday. And then the rest of the time could actually be spent learning something. Learning something that actually matters. Because I would argue that nothing in the curriculum actually matters. Of course, you do need to read and write. But my mom taught me how to read before kindergarten, basically. And if you don't know how to read by kindergarten, I think you're way behind anyways. And you should know some basic math. I do not think you need to know algebra or the quadratic equation. You need to know how to add and multiply and think about percentages. And especially when it comes to taxes and stuff, you do need numbers. But most of that they don't teach you in school anyways. They waste so much time on algebra that you'll never need. And you have to go so slow because they have to cater to the lowest common denominator. Meaning the dumbest kids in the class who have to ask question after question, they just don't get it. They need it explained 52 times. Everybody's sitting around waiting for them to understand it. And I definitely wasn't the brightest kid in the class, but I wasn't the dumbest either. And so I finished stuff way faster than the class would allow. When you do homeschool, if you're not the lowest common denominator, you can get it done quickly. 
And if you are the lowest common denominator, maybe you'll actually learn something because I do think that teachers get very frustrated with those kids, especially when they're trying to go faster for the rest of everyone. And in today's learning environment, where I see a lot of teachers online complaining about how far behind kids are, this makes sense to me because everyone's on their phone, TikTok and all this stuff, and they're spending so much time on like gender ideology and whatever LGBTQ stuff. Literally, they spend a lot of time on this. And almost everything is done on laptops and tablets and stuff now. If you didn't know, a lot of schools are not giving out worksheets at all or anything. It's all on technology. Well, to me, this is terrible for actually learning. And now, since the pandemic, lots of articles are coming out about how far kids are still behind. The New York Times came out here in 2023. In May, and said, according to our calculations, the average student was half a year behind in math and a third of a year behind in reading. That doesn't sound like much, but half a year is a lot when there's only a dozen years of mandatory schooling. And I've seen some videos of teachers saying that they believe their kids are actually at least two years behind on certain things. So sending your kid to school right now is not really a good learning environment. And I would argue it never was. I don't think I was taught anything of value in school, and I'm not just being pessimistic. I was an artist for most of my life, that's how I would have introduced myself, and I even hated art class. Somehow they made art suck for me. And I dropped out after grade 9. And there were some classes that I kind of liked, like shop class, making stuff out of wood, but I got kicked out of that class. And yeah, I was a bad kid, I wasn't the worst kid, but it just wasn't the type of environment that made me want to participate inspired me to do anything, gave me any life lessons, gave me any kind of a blueprint for life, or talked to me about what I might want to do in life. I can't say that it did anything for me other than give me friends and girlfriends and stuff. And honestly, if girls weren't in class, then I wouldn't even have gone. But I never learned anything of value. And I didn't have bad teachers or anything. I had several good teachers that looked out for me. My vice principal pulled strings to get me back into school when I was kicked out the first time. I would say I had better teachers than average, honestly. And they couldn't do anything to teach me because they were stuck to the curriculum. When it comes to history, to my memory, we only had to learn it in grade 10. We did some in elementary school, but it must have been nothing because I don't, I don't remember anything from it. And in high school, we only mandatorily had to take grade 10, and I got kicked out in grade 10. So they kind of gave me that credit for free. I'm not sure why. For the amount of time that I was out of school, I didn't have to go back for the same amount of time. They gave me some free credits. And I'm glad I didn't pay attention in history class because it seems to all be bogus. All coming from the McGraw-Hill textbooks, which I wouldn't trust a single word of. And why am I rambling here? Because what's the answer to this? Teach your own kids. Don't let the government teach your kids. If you want them to be behind, send them to public school. Remember, rich and famous people, people in the club... They don't send their kids to public school, they send their kids to private school. And since the pandemic, there's a lot of parent groups that came together and split the work up. And said, okay, there's five kids here, five sets of parents, so we don't all have to quit our jobs. I'll take Monday, you take Tuesday, etc. And they made it work like that, like carpooling, basically, <laughs> school pooling. And you still do have to follow the curriculum, but at least you can step in and say, hey, this thing that they're teaching you... You know, that's not actually how it is, right? You can teach them that they need to give these answers in order to complete the course. But you can teach them the other side of the story as well. And for those people who don't want their children fully brainwashed, 
there seems to be this rise from the Washington Post here, I'm quoting, rise from the fringe to the fastest growing form of education. Public school has seen a 4% decline, private schools 7% incline, homeschool 51% incline since 2017-18. And some states have seen a truly massive increase, such as New York, 103% increase, California, 78%, Rhode Island, 91%, D.C., 108%, Tennessee, 77%, South Dakota, 94%. These are huge places, ironically, Some of those are the ones that had the tightest COVID restrictions. And there's 11 states, including Texas, Michigan, Connecticut, and Illinois, that don't require notification when families decide to educate their children, so we don't actually have that data. Still in the Washington Post here, homeschooling surging popularity crosses every measurable line of politics, geography, and demographics, so people everywhere are fed up with this. Remember, according to the Pew Research Center, Right now in America, trust in the government is at an all-time low at 16% for all races. So this is exactly correlated with the rise in homeschool, and I think this is how it should be. If you don't trust the government, you should not let the government educate your children. And the post here, they found no correlation between school district quality, as measured by standard test scores, and homeschooling growth. So it's not that parents were saying, oh, the schools suck and uh, the test scores are not good, so I'm going to pull my child out. No, it seems to be, to me, to my interpretation, that they're fed up with the government in general. They're fed up with the lies and the BS. And even the post here makes a comment, Many of America's new homeschooled children have entered a world where no government official will ever check on what or how well they are being taught. And I would say, great. Get the government out of education. And I've spoken about this at more length in my book, Everything the Government Does is Bad for Us. You can find that book and all my books and free audiobook versions, of course, again, on my website, notusbooks.org. And there I also talked about the fact that if you are forced to go to school until you're 18 or whatever, you completely miss your strongest developmental years in doing some sort of trade training. In my case, I was always interested in art. I always felt that I should have been sent to some kind of art training, some kind of art apprenticeship. None of my favorite artists, especially before the 20th century, none of them went to grade 12. There was no grade 12 in the 19th, 18th, 17th centuries. Most of them went into guilds or apprenticeships or art schools when they were very young. They started learning under a master when they were very young. Picasso didn't go to high school. Rembrandt didn't go to high school. Michelangelo and Da Vinci, they didn't go to high school. They honed their skills from a very young age. Mozart, Beethoven, same thing. They honed their skills from a very young age. They put in their 10,000 hours when they were young, and so by the time that they were young adults, they were masters at their craft. And I do believe that government schools, especially the K-12 system, has eliminated mastery, largely eliminated it from our world. Because for me to go and be a full-time artist, I would have had to wait until after school, when it was finished school. Yeah, you can do it on your off hours and whatever, but no, not really, because I had to spend my off hours doing nonsense quadratic equation and other stupid stuff, studying Shakespeare. I'm not saying Shakespeare is stupid or literature is stupid. I'm saying I wasn't into it, so I was being forced to do something that was against my nature. Most of my friends are in the trades. They're plumbers and electrician and construction workers, carpenters, eaves trough specialists and metal workers. 
None of them needed to go to school. Honestly, none of them needed to read Shakespeare ever. And you might say, oh, well, we need to be well-rounded as a culture. Well, no, I disagree, because if you learn a tiny bit of everything, you really know nothing at all. My most successful friends are those same friends, largely, the ones in the trades. They're really good at what they do, and they make the most money on average. And they could have been even better, faster, younger, and made even more money if they didn't have to spend those years wasting time reading Shakespeare. And actually, my best friend growing up, he is also one of my most successful friends. I have some friends who are successful in business and stuff, but I met those people later in life. The people I grew up with, almost all of them went into the trades, and almost all of them are successful. I do have a few friends who went to university. None of them are anywhere near as successful as my trades friends. None of them have as nice houses. None of them have, you know, a happy wife and kids and stuff like that. And I'm sure this is just coincidence here. There are some successful people. There's plenty of successful people who go to university. I'm just saying in my own life, definitely my most successful friends did not go to university. And my best friend, I had to do his homework most of the time. Sometimes he would pay me. But honestly, the main reason that I would do it is so we can go and hang out. I'd write his essays and stuff. He genuinely couldn't do it. Now he's got a nice house on the lake. He has everything you could want, you know, trucks and ATVs and classic cars that he likes to work on on the weekend. He's got all the material stuff. He's got a happy family. He takes care of things. And he knew from a young age that he would be going into the family business, which was already successful back then when he was a kid and is even more successful now. These people own like a quarter of the neighborhood that I grew up in. And if you asked him right now, he still couldn't read Shakespeare. He still couldn't write an essay. But he has great people skills. He has great business skills. He has great hand skills. He knows what he's doing. And there are so many people like this that do a good job, run a good business, and never needed to go to school for those things. They needed to know how to read and do some basic math. And they did need business skills and people skills. But business skills and people skills are not taught in school, not in regular elementary and high school. And these people, these trades people, the plumbers, the electricians, the builders, the drivers, these are the people that make the world go round. The entire political class could stop right now. They could go on vacation right now and nothing would change. All the white-collar workers working at insurance firms and banks and even people like me, I'm what, a social media influencer? Nothing would change in the world because the truckers would keep trucking, the builders would keep building, the mechanics and fixers would keep on fixing. These are the people that actually run our world and I think we need to give them more credit and I think the world is realizing that these are better job opportunities, too, in the large part because recession or no recession, pandemic or no pandemic, they're still working. They still have work. If anything, their biggest complaint is they don't have enough workers. White collar people like me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I don't know how to fix an air conditioning unit. If it breaks, I have to call a blue-collar person who it doesn't matter if they went to high school or not. It doesn't matter if they can read Shakespeare or not. It doesn't matter if they know algebra. They know how to fix the air conditioning unit, and I'll pay them whatever it costs to do it. I'm saying we need these people big time, and they don't need school at all. I think we should be exposed to a variety of things, but not to the extent that school forces us to be, and especially since the vast majority of those things in school are completely useless for real life, I don't see it as a good use of time. I don't think we should spend that much time in school. And if you do the homeschool option, then you can get the mandatory curriculum done quite quickly in most cases and then spend the rest of the time doing something you're actually drawn to doing. Develop a skill, develop a passion, develop a business. Hey, when I was kicked out of school, the second time, I started a business with my friend. I didn't even want to go back to school. You know, I kind of went because my mom guilted me and she really wanted me to go and finish high school. But I was running a business at that time. I found what I like doing, running businesses. And full time, I was able to do that. I was 16 years old. And honestly, that's a late start to me. To really, really develop something, I think it needs to be done as young as possible. And I'm very glad that I got that experience in business back then. Because I did eventually end up in business for myself. And I could have started that younger if I didn't waste so much time in school. Just saying. I even went to college briefly for business, by the way. I dropped out because I didn't see the value in it. So even then, at a specialized program for business, I still think that actually doing business was better. And it would be the same with art. I don't need to study art. I need to do art. And optimally, under the guidance or under the mentorship of somebody who's been doing it much longer. This is how mastery is passed down. School does not pass down any mastery at all. Long rant here, but I do want to speak up for homeschool. A lot of people are already doing it. A lot of people are considering it. And a couple more points here. Business Insider from 2018 back here. Research suggests homeschooled children tend to do better on standardized tests, stick around longer in college, and do better once they're enrolled. So they're saying back here that homeschool children were actually better students. Homeschoolhere.com said the homeschool children are not smarter. It's just the differences in the opportunities they've been afforded. So one of the biggest benefits that come with homeschooling is that children can progress as they are ready. Go at your own pace. In a classroom setting, if you do not fall with the timeline the school is set, you are easily lost in the cracks. A child that needs extra time to grasp a concept does not have the benefit of spending an extra few days on it before moving on. And yeah, I would say the opposite is even more true. The ones who are ahead of it are bored. I was bored. School was not that difficult. I was so bored. I spent most of the time drawing graffiti and getting in trouble. And children who are bored in class will very often become disruptive to other students, hindering their learning. Yes, I was one of those disruptive children. And I didn't go on this rant in order to do uh, the pitch that I'm about to give you, but it came up while I was thinking about it. My sister is actually opening a homeschool classroom at her house her my mother her fiance my uncle they all just moved into this big farmhouse in lindsay ontario 
And I realize most of the listeners here will not be from Lindsay, Ontario, or the Kawartha area. But I'm just putting it out there for the network effect. They did not get any children enrolled in this uh, September 2023, but they are completely ready. They're completely set up. They have uh, two small classrooms in an extension of the house. Both my sister and her fiancé, very soon-to-be husband, they're getting married this Thanksgiving, actually, which is next weekend at the time of this recording. They have diplomas in childcare and especially with special needs children. For many years, they've been working with autistic children and severely disabled children, but they're qualified for regular children as well to go through the standard curriculum and not teach them all the extra nonsense that is being done in schools right now. So if you happen to be in the Lindsay area, Lindsay, Ontario, or you happen to know somebody in the Lindsay, Ontario area and are interested in this homeschool thing and not really capable of doing it yourself, I definitely encourage you to check out my sister's business. They do not have a website as of now, but you can contact me. I can put you in touch. My contact information is in the description of this podcast, and of course you can find it on notusbooks.org as well. All right, and just a couple more quick points here on this homeschool rant. I was recently in Southern California talking with an Uber driver who is a Mexican-American, grew up in California, but he recently moved his family down to the Tijuana area across the border. Now, traditionally, we would think, you know, Mexicans want to come to America for a better life, but this is an example of an American born in America going back to Mexico for a better life, because this is what he said. He said... I'm tired of them teaching my children all kinds of nonsense. Nonsense that does not agree with my values. He says he has his kids in private school down in Mexico for like 60 bucks. I can't remember if that was a week or a month, but that's a good deal either way. So a better education in Mexico. And even though Tijuana is considered one of the most dangerous cities in the world, they say, if you Google it, hey, is Tijuana safe to visit as a tourist? They'll say, no, be careful. But yet one of his other reasons is that he feels safer down there. Because, of course, California is not punishing petty criminals, basically. Which means all kinds of people can run amok and do drugs in the streets and steal stuff and break car windows, rob people, and not get punished for it. And I don't feel safe in California either, at least not with my stuff. I don't want to leave my stuff in cars and everything. You know, I'm, I'm always keeping my stuff with me. Because, yeah, this petty crime thing is out of control. So I just thought it was interesting to see somebody moving to Mexico for a better life. And I heard this recently as well in Canada. One of our customers, she's from Russia, same thing, packing up, moving back to Russia. One of the reasons is the school system in Canada polluting her daughter. Her daughter, I think, is 14 years old. And she said that there's only two girls in her class that identify as straight. Her daughter and one other girl. They're the only ones. Everyone else identifies as gay or bi or whatever new adjective they made up. And of course, I'm sure most of us here listening believe that this has a lot to do with what they're teaching them. They're telling them, hey, yeah, it's okay to be gay. It's okay to be whatever you want. You can identify as a dog if you want. They're drilling this into them. They're spending school time when they're supposed to be learning stuff about life, learning how to spell and, you know, whatever you're supposed to learn in, in class. They're teaching them about sex and gender ideology. And so this Russian woman was fed up with it. And same thing with the crime thing. She had a business in Toronto and she said, you know what, it's not worth it to run this business. Same thing. Petty crime running amok. Petty criminals not being punished. So people are doing drugs in the streets. 
breaking stuff, stealing stuff. So she's going back to Russia for a better life, a better education, a better environment for her daughter. I know a lot of you guys are hip to this, but I'm telling you, there are a lot of people out there who are choosing homeschool, private school, and choosing to leave the country for the sake of their children's education. Okay, and I mentioned I was going to talk about YouTube just a little bit. I'm not happy with YouTube at all. I've ranted about it elsewhere, but I did post this video to YouTube and it actually did pretty well. And that's part of what my frustration is with YouTube, that they're strongly cracking down on health information. They keep pulling down our videos about health. Just got another notification yesterday. They pulled another one of our lectures down because it goes against the World Health Organization's, whatever they say, goes against the status quo so you cannot hear it because you're too stupid to parse apart information and decide what's right for you. That's what they believe. And of course, they demonetized our health channel, Wallach's Warriors. And I'm not on YouTube for the money. I don't really care. I never expected to have a million subscribers or to be rich from YouTube or to be an influencer. I don't care. I don't even like the attention. I'm here to put the message out. And I don't like it when platforms block that message. And I know that when you do get demonetized, you also get less promotion from YouTube. We already don't have lots of views. Most of it is organic from us promoting our own stuff on Instagram. It's basically already our captive audience. We don't get help from YouTube or from the algorithm. And that's fine, but when you get demonetized, it's even worse. So it's very frustrating that I put this hidden history video up and it did relatively well. And the videos that actually help people with their health and their right now, they don't do very well at all. I've even said that I was quitting YouTube before and I still basically am. I'm not making content just for YouTube, but I do think I'll put more of these video episodes, the ones that are not about vaccines or whatever, you know, that are not controversial, I think. I will put some of them on YouTube, and you can see this video presentation version of this podcast on YouTube, minus this rant here. But I feel dirty doing it. And those of you listening here at the end, you know, I think we're talking friend to friend here, heart to heart. Just want to let you know that I don't feel good about this. I feel like I'm selling out big time. I know I've had to make sort of a deal with the devil to be on social media in the first place, to be on Instagram at all. It doesn't make me feel good. Of course, we help lots of people. We reach lots of people. And I make my living doing it. And several other people have paychecks generated from what we do on social media. I know we need to make a living. And since we help people, it justifies this deal with the devil. But like I said, I don't feel good about it. I do sell my books on Amazon once again. Don't feel good about it, but I can't beat their distribution. I can't sell you a $10 book for $10. They give you free shipping. I can't beat that. Shipping costs more than the book. Maybe one day I'll be able to do without it. Maybe one day an alternative video platform will get big. And I don't mean Rumble. Rumble is also sponsored by Vanguard and BlackRock. I don't trust Rumble either. And I do post to Rumble. Very few people watch Rumble, so I don't expect it to get much views, and they don't get much views, but whatever. Maybe a non-corrupt platform will take over one day, but I really don't expect it. I do think we should all spend less time on social media, even though I need to use social media to get the message out. I don't have any answers here. I don't have any conclusions. Just kind of explaining why I did sort of go back on myself, and I did post this to YouTube. I feel like I have to justify it. 
I posted another video podcast here as well, the one I did with Mike from Safeguard Solutions. It's called EMF in the Home. And the main reason for doing this is honestly, I want to help my guests get more exposure. I want Mike to get more exposure. I want Sylvan here who did this episode. I'd like him to get more exposure for him to sell more books. And of course, I'd like to promote the podcast more as well. Since we did get the podcast taken down earlier this year, we're still climbing up from zero. We had over 2 million downloads before, and now I think we're at just about 6,000 downloads right now, which is, that's what it takes. you got to climb from zero again. So, yeah, posting the podcast episodes to YouTube might help get a little bit more people listening to it here. I would like to shift my efforts almost entirely into podcast. I think these long-form episodes do a lot more than the short-term stuff we're able to do on Instagram. And of course, I don't expect YouTube to play ball and let us put health information out there. So I think the biggest reach available to us here is podcast. Of course, I would appreciate any of you sharing these episodes. I know a lot of you listen to them at work. And I was recently informed that there's actually a school, a sports medicine college in India, where several of their teachers actually play our Instagram story and stuff in class and recommend that their students listen to the podcast and watch the long-form stuff. Fantastic. We need to do this to create a better world, to create a healthier world. This episode today, the hidden history thing, we need to understand that the past is fake, basically because the same people that are trying to write our future also wrote our past. We need to understand that they manipulated the past and they were trying to manipulate the future as well. If we stop following along with mainstream and government opinion and World Economic Forum and all this stuff, then we can create the future that we want, not the future that they want. And that's pretty much my rant for today, guys. I do appreciate you. Once again, those who are listening on the archive on notusbooks.org, you guys stick around. There's a special treat for you at the end. Everybody else, I appreciate you. Until next time.